Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Locks Talks podcast. Tonight is episode number six with Ginny Burton. Now, I will say that this episode is a little more sensitive. There's a lot of mature content, um, a little bit of graphic content, too. Um, so that's just a warning. But Ginny has an incredible story. I would call it a comeback story. Um, she started using drugs when she was six. Um, throughout most of her life, she spent her time in and out of prison and abusive relationships and living, you know, as a homeless drug addict. She did, you know, all sorts of drugs, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, you name it. Um, and just hearing her life story really changed my perspective on, you know, how, how you can live. She went from basically living on the streets to being, you know, a prestigious student at the University of Washington right now. Um, and getting scholarships and even, you know, offers from schools like Yale. And it's just, it's such an incredible, like I said, a comeback story. And I'm really hoping that you guys can enjoy it. Um, so sit back, relax, and have fun listening to this and really take in what she says. Because she has really good advice about everything in life, um, just based on what she's lived through. Uh, thanks again for all the support that you guys have been giving me. It really means a lot. And I hope that you enjoy this podcast and there's more episodes to come. Otherwise, uh, enjoy. Thanks. Ten. Nine. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Um, and that's just where the relationship started. And he asked if I would be willing to um, uh, be filmed on the show. And I said, yeah. And so I exposed myself. Yeah. Was that the first time that you, like, I mean, obviously probably not in your life, the first time you've probably shared details of your your life story, but was that the first time maybe publicly, obviously that publicly, but yeah, that publicly. Yeah. I knew that that would be, um, being aired on primetime television. So, um, that is the first time that I've shared my story with that many people in yeah. the world. And it yeah. was shared not just nationally, but internationally. Oh, no, I, I was surprised because, you know, you get like a local news station that had like, I mean, at least within the last few days, like over 3.3 million. Yeah, that's just on the just YouTube alone. Yeah. yeah, because I know that it was probably more on, you know, every yeah. other platform. But it just YouTube in general, you see like news, like local yeah. places. They don't, you know, maybe a few thousand, but yeah. like millions is like, you see that on like CNN, yeah. stuff like that. Like, so I was like, oh, wow. Like a lot of people saw this. Yeah, no, I've had people reach out to me from uh, Malta. Which Where I, is that? That's exactly what I said. I was, I have <laughs> so no Malta idea. is somewhere in Europe. I think it's by Spain, but don't Malta. quote me on that. Okay, I, I didn't actually look at the globe we'll or anything. Out. I'll find out later. Yeah, I know. I, I still haven't researched Malta. it. Okay. And then I've had somebody recently reach out to me from Melbourne, um, Australia. Mm -hmm. So um, so they're watching Around stuff. the world. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I'm popular, apparently. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I was going to say. I have all kinds of new friends. <laughs> yeah. All over the world, all over yeah. the country, especially probably the state and the city. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. A lot. A lot um, over the, you know, throughout the state and the city and, and really um, throughout the country. I've been reached out to by a significant uh, amount of people and a wide range of people as well. You know, yeah. from like social, so? social service activists, uh, prosecuting attorneys, um, uh, defense attorneys, reg just regular, a lot of different people. all kinds, yeah. all kinds of attorneys, like a lot of people that are trying to create programs that, um, are actually beneficial to folks that are, you know, challenged by homelessness and, um, incarceration and things like that. So that's felt really good, um, that I, that I'm being viewed as credible. Yeah. Uh, no, so, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad for that. I mean, 
I was going to say, like, why attorneys? But then it makes sense because, you know. Some of them are working on social programs and things like that. I do believe. They haven't necessarily, everybody hasn't revealed what they're doing. But I've gotten quite a few folks that are like, I'm working on this thing. And I really think you need to yeah, be involved. Of course. And I'll let you know. Yeah. I mean, because so, you would probably know better than a lot of people, too. I mean, from personal experiences and you know, if I would ask you if I was in their situation, you know, trying to plan something out with all that stuff. Um, and that brings me back because like I said, you, you have, you know, your own personal experiences yeah. with everything realistically from I mean, lots, what of I heard, stuff. lots of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So you are living currently where at? So I live in West Seattle West currently. Seattle. I've been there for seven next month. I will have been in the place where I'm living at now for seven years. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and so you've always, but you've always lived in the Seattle area, right? Yeah, I'm from Tacoma. Tacoma. Okay. So, is that where uh, you were born and raised? That was where okay. I was born and raised. Um, and then I went to prison the second time in 1997 and uh, never returned there to reside. Um, well, I kind of lived there for a few months in 2012 uh, prior to my last arrest. Okay. Um, but I've been in Seattle pretty much since 2000. And, well, no, since 2000. Excuse me. Yeah. So, yeah, over 20 years. Yeah. And so where your story starts is obviously in Tacoma, mm-hmm. right? You were raised by your mother and I, I know my your mom and dad. father was in prison Correct. at a, when you were a young age. So I yeah. would say you were raised by your mother and father. I didn't know how long that lasted, at least father-wise. So yeah. like what happened? So, um, so I was raised by my mom and dad mm-hmm. for the first four years of my life. In my Tacoma? dad, Yes. And okay. uh, my dad went to prison uh, at, when I was four. It was 1976. Our house got okay. raided. Um, I watched. I was standing at the top of the stairs when uh, a bunch of, you know, plain clothes cops came in. I had no idea who they were. And they tackled my dad to the ground in front of me on the stairs, actually. And uh, I was watched. Was your mom there? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. she was there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And there are seven kids in my family. At the time, there were. Seven kids. Yes. So you have, wait, I have six, you're, you're, I have, you're, you're one and then seven or one and six. One and six. Okay. One, six. Well, there are some steps along the way. Okay. Also, my well, mom did, was married five times. Wow. So there are some was, dads. Were you, were you the last marriage or what? I was her actual first marriage. Oh, wow. Um, my, I have, uh, two older brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, not sure who his dad was. Um, and then my brother, John, who is, uh, the, he's right before me. Um, him and I share the same father. And then mm-hmm. I have a brother that's younger than me, That uh, the one directly under me, not sure who his dad is. And then the three younger siblings, Frank, Grace, and Andrea. Um, wow. Frank and Grace are twins. And um, and then he, uh, the, the three youngest ones share the same dad. That's a lot of family stuff for me to try to understand. That's a lot. That's yeah. a, lot. a lot for me to try to understand. Yeah, and I, I was know. there. Yeah, you're there. But I mean, for me to hear that, I'm like, oh. Like yeah, five. Yeah, that's, that's a so lot. There was a lot going on. So when my when the house was raided, um, there were there were four of us at that time. Okay. So um, yeah, but my dad was uh, incarcerated. Um, I had I really didn't have a concept of, you know, what was really going on. I sort of caught wind of the idea that it was drug related, and I made the decision at that time that drugs were bad, yeah. and that I didn't want to participate. When you were four. Yes. Was it drug related? Yes. What I happened? mean, well, you know, the majority of crimes that happen are drug well, yeah, related. I, I mean, I so, assumed, but I didn't know like what happened. Like, yeah. So, I mean, from what I know, what I recall, 
is that um, he, they were robbing pizza Hut chains. Who? My dad and this guy. I don't know how many people were involved, but I know that my pizza mom. Hut? Yes. So my mom's friend actually worked for a Pizza Hut, okay. and I think that she was setting up some of these jobs. And so. Oh, I see. Yeah, and so somebody got shot in the process, and. Um, and my Your dad's dad, friend, or no, uh, one of the people that worked at Pizza Hut. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so she got shot in the process. I don't think that she died, but they were incarcerated for it. And that was back during the time when um, our system here in Washington State was under the parole board. And you, you know, you get given a sentence, and then you can be released at specific times, depending good on good behavior and yeah, stuff. Yeah, okay. depending on what the parole board decides. And mm-hmm. so, my dad ended up. I think he served about four years, um, and then he was on parole for twenty years. So, so he was free in what eighty? Um, yeah, I guess I guess yeah, it was 80. eighty or eighty-one. So it might have okay. been a little more than four years. I mean, I was pretty yeah. young, so. Um, well, I think it was 80 because my stepdad, I think, died in 81, and my dad had been out for a while when that happened. So so you lived four years, just you and your mom? Oh, and well, I mean, your siblings. No, my mom well. was very quickly with another man. Oh, very quickly. Very I mean, quickly. Oh, I, I mean, yeah, if you're married a bunch of times, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I can understand that, actually. She was a busy woman. She was yeah. a busy woman. So, so, so your, your dad goes to prison when you're four, Yeah. Um, and you decide, you know, you know drugs are bad, whatever. It's probably yeah. has something to do with that. Um, you see what it did. And for four years... It was you, your mom, and other guys, I guess? Yes, yeah, so, well, there was one guy. So she got together with this one guy. That mm-hmm. was her second husband. Um, he was actually, uh, he ended up having um, terminal cancer of the colon. And so um, so those four years that my dad was gone, you know, it two, two years into his prison sentence, uh, drugs were introduced to my life. And, um, so I so actually, when you were six? Yes. So six I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to do them. I knew that they were bad. I knew that they destroyed my dad's life. Um, but I lived, you know, my mom wasn't the most nurturing, loving parent. And um, I was I was kind of picked on quite a bit as a kid. I was pretty sensitive and shy. By just kids? Well, by my family. By your family. Mm-hmm. Did it's, you go to school? I did. Oh, okay. yeah. I was in... Ex- yeah, I was... Um, I tested at... A, young age and got into kindergarten earlier mm-hmm. than most kids and um, quickly was placed in Excel programs in school. And so that was really... Um, so you were and, always smart. Yeah. I yeah. mean, well, I would probably question whether I feel like I'm smart today, but, you well, know... Well, I mean, I would, I would say if, if you're getting into kindergarten before people, you're a little smarter than I was, most people. I was definitely labeled as intelligent. Okay. And, um, but, you know, and... Yeah, gosh, I was I was almost about to go on a tangent about some stuff, but um, you know, I was definitely labeled as intelligent, and um, you know, but you know, pressure and acceptance and love are things that are really important to a little kid. Definitely. And um, when you feel like you're not accepted and loved, even at a really young age, um, it makes those things that you know are wrong um, a little easier to do when the people around you are telling you that that's what they want you to do. And so you just want, and for me, it was, I just wanted my mom to love me and um, I just wanted them to be okay with me for a minute. And I was really uncomfortable with making the decision to do it, but eventually I did. I, I caved to the pressure and I smoked weed and, um, and that kind of set the ball rolling for me. Um, uh, you know, granted, I didn't become an immediate drug addict, um, but I think that the field was sort of laid wide open for addiction to take control of my life at that time. For sure. Um, and, 
you know, uh, so my stepdad ended up dying. Uh, Cancer? Yes, yeah. uh, a couple years later. And and then my mom, um, her life went sort of out of control. And she, we had moved, we moved around a lot when I was young, but she, we had moved back into Tacoma. We were away from Tacoma for a while uh, when he was sick and um, all kinds of crazy stuff happened. And um, my life is like this smorgasbord of traumatic events um, that I never really recognized, honestly, until I got older. I mean, I knew a lot of stuff happened, but that was just life. Well, when you're young, you don't really probably think about it as much. you don't. It's just life. And going back really quickly, when you say, like, you folded and you caved into the pressure of them wanting, what do you mean, like, they wanted you to do this, like, like marijuana when you were six? So my stepdad was going into the city. We were living um, in a really rural area, really close to... um, uh, Canada up called it's called Tenasket. It's up in eastern northeastern Washington, okay. and um, he was coming into the city to get uh, chemotherapy or something like that. And so he was going to be gone for a few days. And her and my brothers, um, and my stepbrother was living with us at the time. By that time, um, I think all of us kids were there. So except for maybe my youngest sister Andrea, um, but they had made this plan that we were all going to smoke weed. And I had known about it for a couple of days. Um, when your dad, when your stepdad was gone? Yes. And okay. so um, because he was uh, a cancer patient, um, and yeah. I, yeah. They, got, they were able to get weed, right? Well, we lived in this place way, way far away from civilization. And they had these barter fairs and all kinds of stuff. And people grew weed on their property out in this place and stuff. And so they had like this huge um, surplus of I would imagine of weed and so um, and so I think my brothers had been at least one of my like I think it might have been my stepbrother but one or two of them had been smoking weed and so they um, them with my mom made this plan and uh, when he left you know she was going to smoke weed with us and I really didn't want to Um, and uh I think that I was really pressured by them because they didn't want me to tell. So I think they thought that I was going to tell. So the pressure was just really added on. And and I remember crying and I remember being uncomfortable and saying that I didn't want to and then being picked on and made fun of and then finally just doing it. And then when I did it, everybody liked me and everybody was happy with me and uh, I was shown a lot of acceptance. and. Um, I don't. I still don't think I felt comfortable with it at the time, but um, I mean, I I recognized, and I don't even know. I mean, I'm sure I couldn't have like recognized at the time, but I was creating a pattern, you know, and that's how I found acceptance. I'm just I'm surprised and impressed in a in a positive way that you had like the, these thoughts of like not wanting to do it, you know, like you know feeling uncomfortable because when you're that, I mean, being six years old, it's like you don't. I, I mean, I can't say it because I don't know, you know, how I felt back then, but, like, I wouldn't even have imagined, you know, g- the difference between good and bad, like, especially with drugs. I didn't probably know what those were back then, and it's just impressive that you, like, you know, had the, you know, the confidence to at least say something or not, not want to do it instead of just folding in. So it's, you know, it's 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 strange to think about, you know, the difference between, I mean, obviously we had different stories in life, but, like, and just hearing you say, like, when you're six years, it's just so young for you to be feeling so much, you know, so much emotion and, you know, having all this pressure and stuff. It's just, it's, um, it's a little unbelievable, actually. It's just that young to me. And were your sisters and brothers that young too, or what? So my sisters and brothers are, uh, well, my brother Joey is two and a half years younger than me. And then my 
Frank, Grace, and Andrea. Frank and Grace are six years younger than me, and Andrea is seven years younger than me. So they were significantly younger. Okay. So who, your mom and who then were pressuring uh, you? Oh, my mom and my and uh, my older brothers. Oh, you're Sean, okay. Yeah. My mom and my brother Sean and my brother Jeff. Okay. So I see. Yeah. So that opened up. I mean, everyone says it's the gateway drug. It, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it opened up, you know, this pattern clearly through your life, um, starting when you were six years old. And I mean, what did you always, I mean, did you continue to smoke weed throughout the next three years or like when was the next level? Yeah. So, um, so I did continue to smoke weed. Um, and I found that, um, as my mom invited all of these other kinds of people into our life after my stepdad died. Um, like who? People from bars and things like that. Um, some young people, bikers, uh, and whoever they brought around. Some young girls, some, you know, older guys. Uh, just a, a smorgasbord of people, really. Just like a wide array of people were in and out of our houses all the time. For our, what reason? It was a party house. It was, oh, it was party. Yeah. Okay. It was all partying, drinking, drugs, and things like that. And this was still in near Canada. No, we living? had moved back oh, to moved Tacoma. Back. Okay. Right by this okay. time, and so um, my stepdad died. He died in our living room. Um, he was extremely abusive, um, and my mom was also similarly abusive. And um, was he physically, verbally? What? Absolutely both. Yeah. So not sexually. I didn't. There wasn't a lot of sexual abuse that occurred when I was young, but um, there was definitely a lot of verbal, emotional, and physical abuse. From both. Yes. But your mom. Or sorry, your stepdad was worse. Um, he was worse when he was alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he um, he was pretty pretty violently abusive. What do you mean when he was alive? Um, well, he, I mean he was alive with us. For, I mean, I, I think abuse continues on psychologically. Oh, so, I see what you mean. Yeah, sorry, when he, I was yeah, when he was alive, he definitely. I was see. Well, worse. Yeah, it definitely continues on psychologically. Yeah, but after he died, my mom was it was worse, uh, and you know, it was pretty bad with me, and and I. For a long time, I thought that it was worse with me, um, and then I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm just imagining that. There were a lot of us; we were all beaten by my mom. But my some just of my siblings have was... confirmed that um, she was really bad with me. Was she abusive because of you know? I mean, obviously, probably because of drugs. But was she? Would she get high and become abusive? Was she always just? Like that. I think it had a lot to do with insecurity, to be honest with you, um, and. Uh, coming down off of drugs really, I think, exacerbates somebody's lack of skills. Mm-hmm. Um, as a parent, if you're not patient, um, if things annoy you, uh, if you're coming down from drugs or if you're on alcohol or something like that, um, I think it becomes a lot easier to sort of snap from any kind of patience that you might have. And, and she did that regularly. She was very demanding. Um, she... It was almost like she was con- trying to compete with me with things, but I was her kid. Like, I just wanted to be loved. And so, um, of course, you know, uh, so yeah, she became extremely uh, abusive towards me after after he died. And what kind of drugs did she use? I mean, obviously, she smoked weed, but there yeah. I mean, was that all that she? No. She was, well, she's an alcoholic. Okay. And she smoked weed and mm-hmm. she did methamphetamine. and The whole time that you were growing up? Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know if meth was around the entire time, but... Um, Definitely alcohol then. Yeah, I mean, pills, lots of pills, uh, cocaine, I'm sure. But I don't think that cocaine was the big thing with the majority of the people that were coming around our house just because it can be very expensive because the effects wear off pretty oh, yeah. quickly. So For sure. Yeah. And when your siblings confirmed later on that they treated you like worse yeah. than most of them. Do you, 
do you, would you know a reason why they, you know, your no, stepdad not them, runs hard? But my mom, like they confirmed oh. that, that my mom, your mom. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you, would you know a reason why that she specifically targeted you more? I'm really, I think it's just inc- insecurity and competition, like feeling oh. like she had to compete. Um, you know, I mean, as a kid, you get attention, you yeah. know, and I, I just think my mom was really insecure and I think there was probably some mental, mental illness. Um, I don't think that she did as much of the personal work on herself uh, as she got older as I probably have on myself where I've really tried to, and I've always been very aware, even at a young age, like you were talking about, you know, when I was six and me being so aware of that stuff. You know, I held myself responsible probably until about, I don't know, eight years ago uh, of not caring for myself appropriately at the age of six. Like I put yeah. these adult responsibility ideals onto myself that I wasn't like, I look at my daughter now, my youngest daughter, and I consider her when she was six years old. And I was like, there's absolutely no way that I could have known how to take care of, of myself not. in those ways. Yeah. And so that's why know, I went back. That's what I was asking you yeah. about it. Cause it's just like, you think about six years old. It's well, like, and wild. I've always been in my head, like I've always been really aware and, um, I've always sort of dissected my life, my psyche, my choices and things like that. And, you know, for a long time in my life, I just, I felt like a contradiction walking because I always felt like I wasn't being who I was in my heart, like I wasn't being my true self. And I think it caused me a lot of problems in my addiction. Um, I think that, you know, it caused me probably a lot of problems um, where I could see people's intentions a lot of the time. And, you know, I was always, I remember like being in the fifth and sixth grade and I would start to sort of communicate the things that would go on in my head to my friends and people around me because I wanted to see if they thought like I did. If what they, do you mean communicate? Um, you know, like, I don't know. Like if I was having changes in my body or if I was having certain kind of thoughts and, and I would then start to ask them, like, do you think this way? Or have you ever thought like this? So or, you're pretty honest. I, I've always been really, really transparent. As yeah. a matter of fact, I recently got into a car accident and my friend, really? yes. Uh, as it How was, recent? Uh, the 5th, the 5th of January. Oh, whoa. Yeah, That's I totaled really okay. my car. Oh, shoot. And so like, the, and this is just a testament to my transparency. Okay. So I, a friend of mine called me the other day and we were talking, he's asking me what's been going on. And I told him, you know, that I wrecked my car. And so he's asking me all these questions. He's like, you didn't tell them that's what you were doing, did you? Because I my phone rang, and I didn't have my phone up on a hands-free thing or anything, and I yeah. looked down no. to swipe, and I looked up, and I all I saw was a semi. I couldn't even see the light, and it was pouring down rain, and had it been dry, I probably could have braked um, effectively, but I didn't, and I ended up slamming into the, um, the semi. So, But my friend said, you didn't... He's like, I know you told them that you swiped your phone, didn't you? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's good to be honest, though. It yeah, is. But I it definitely think so. shows because then your friends, yeah, it shows that your friends know who you are. Yes. yes they're used to you yes. being honest. I mean, it's good to be honest, though. No, right? it is. I mean, you know, uh, granted, sometimes you don't necessarily finish first when you're honest, but, um, you know, no, but I've always been transparent. And that's how I've been able to gauge, I think, my mental health. Um, mm-hmm. and to check whether, you know, cause I've always felt sort of a little bit different on the inside. And, um, and I think that for me, I don't like to walk around and feel uncomfortable. So, um, the only way and discomfort typically is a result of insecurity. And so, um, for me, in order to find out if I'm like other people, 
because I think that's a lot of times what we seek as humans. We want to know approval. That, yeah, we want to know that we're like other people, mm-hmm. right? We want to know that we're not different or we're not weird. Sometimes I think that now the older I got, I learned that I don't mind being different, and it's yeah, a, even okay shouldn't. to be a little bit weird. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I mean, that's sort of how I started to gauge whether or not there was something significantly wrong with me. And I think that I came to the conclusion that there's not. Um, but I spent a really long time in my life uh, looking for people that I thought were like me. So. And did you find them? I think they were all alike. Um, I, I didn't know if you found somebody like like specifically you're looking for because we all we no. are, you know, you're all right. I mean we you know we all have our our little weird tendencies and mm-hmm. this and that. We're all different, but it makes us alike. You know our differences always make us alike. Yeah. But that's that's what great because if everybody was the same, it would be a boring world. It'd be so boring. So boring, right? So, boring. so that's why I'm glad <laughs> that you recognize that, um, especially you know at such a young age that you're trying to be honest and you know ask ask people about that whether it's your friends or not um because a lot of people just want to they're insecure because they keep those things to themselves because they think people think that they're different and if you're just honest i think it's just easier to like you know be more open and you feel like like you said you're not walking like a contradiction you feel like you know it's better to be honest like you said you don't finish first all the time when you're just you know telling the truth but you feel way better than if you did lying about it i don't have to figure out what i said and i don't have to create anything around it yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah, and I think really for me, you know, it had a lot to do with probably the abuse that was taking place. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, being fed one message and then feeling like a different person internally and then having that fed to you so much, eventually you start saying the message to yourself. Yeah, of and course. So, and, and I think that's sort of where I transitioned, you know, into um, I guess the path that sort of, almost helped me destroy my life. And so, um, because I just sort of submitted, you know, I just sort of submitted to the things that I felt were contradictory or that were not like me. And, and I just committed to that. Like I do everything else in my life. I just decided to be the best at whatever it was that I was doing. And when did this path to destroy your life like begin? I mean, probably when you were six, the first time you ever smoked weed, but like you were saying, you started smoking it regularly. Yeah. Um, and that obviously, like you said, unlocked passageways and, you know, your pathways. And I don't remember exactly the phrase that you use, but um, that's, you know, you, you kind of committed to that life. You found out, like, in your mind, it's like, you know, I'm best at doing this because, you know, that's when my family loves me the most. It's when I do this. So it's, you know, I got to keep doing this. Um, you started smoking at six. I'm just going back in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, did you continue smoking because you were made to smoke like your family like forced you to or did you just end up becoming dependent or addictive on it well i ended up doing it um i I was able to be accepted uh it was kind of like um the people that were involved in our life they uh they commended that kind of behavior like they were that they were very accepting of it and you would be recognized and noticed. And, and so I felt special in a sense, I think. And so, um, so I would smoke weed. We had this 18 year old, she wasn't necessarily a babysitter, but she definitely hung out with us a lot. My, one of the people that were living in our house that my mom had connected with at a bar, uh, he was much older than her, but he was dating her and she wasn't old enough to get in the bars. She was always around and, um, she wasn't 21? No, she was 18. Oh, shoot. This oh, yeah. changes a lot. Hold yeah, no, on. yeah. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that I saw in my life. <laughs> so, so how old were you, or how old was your mom when she had you? My mom was 21 when she had me. 
So the whole time that no, that wasn't my mom. That was eighteen. Oh, it I was see some, what you're saying. Yeah, it was somebody I see what else. You're I mean, so yeah, so I started smoking weed with her. That makes sense. Okay, right. I got confused for a second. Yeah, okay. no. So I started smoking weed with her, and then sometimes I would smoke weed with my brothers. And, and then, then, then if my nanny. mom had people were um, that were hanging around and partying, in you know, for us to be able to hang out during the party, like people would give us weed or drink, and so it just sort of started to become a social thing, and that's how mm-hmm. I found acceptance so um eventually like i don't even think i really liked it at first but excuse me um eventually it just became became a habit yeah. became a pattern is sent from your personal experience i just want to know this is weed like is it addictive or i i mean i don't i don't understand psychologically because i know there's obviously some things like heroin and meth that are addictive chemically and everything really yeah. But I don't know because I've heard the discussion before that weed isn't addictive because you can. I, I I don't know. I mean, I I yes. have no idea. So physically addictive? No. The only drugs that I've ever done that are physically addictive um, are heroin, benzodiazepines, and alcohol. So okay. those are the only ones that your body becomes dependent on them mm-hmm. if you use them regularly. I there may be others, uh, but none that I'm like completely aware of in this moment. Um, meth is not physically addictive like that. However. When your body, meth, cocaine, all of that stuff, whenever your body gets really familiar with, you know, um, consuming a chemical regularly, especially as a coping mechanism, because it becomes a coping mechanism, it becomes the way that you deal with your emotions and things like that. Whenever your body becomes, you know, familiar with doing that regularly, you become psychologically dependent on it. Even though your body might not have like extreme withdrawals or anything, um, you're still going to have effects when you stop using them. So, but with heroin, you become very, heroin or any um, opiate, uh, such as, I mean, even I think opium, um, but, you know, pills and things like that that the doctor gives you, if you take them long enough, regularly enough, your tissue, your organs, it, Become it becomes dependent. dependent. Yeah. And then when you don't have them, you actually become ill where you yeah. vomit and withdraws, have diarrhea and things like that. So. so when did the next level of drugs past smoking weed happen? So you started, you know, young age, you know, your party house, I mean, your house turned into a party house, a bunch of different people coming in and out and introducing you to smoking weed more. You start smoking a lot. Yeah. Um, it be kind of became what dependent on it or, you know, you were just used to it a lot. You smoked yeah. it a lot. It became a habit. Until, and when, what, how old were you when the next drug was introduced? Uh, 12. 12. So six yeah. years of smoking weed. Yeah. Well, and I, and I was drinking too. I started yeah. drinking too during that time. I mean, that's, you know, it's horrible. I, I feel like those are the same kind yeah, of, Yeah, I mean, like, I consider alcohol kind of, a, kind of a drug. I mean, it's, yeah. it's oh, very no, dangerous. Oh, no, alcohol is definitely, yeah. definitely a drug. I mean, a lot of people don't want to put that on, the, it's, to me, it's, it's pretty bad. If it yeah. gets, if it gets, it's actually terrible. Yeah. So I mean, a lot yeah. of people die as a result of alcohol for sure. use. Yeah. So. so you were drinking and smoking weed for six yeah. years, starting at six years old, all the way to 12. You probably did pass then, but like that's 12 was when the next level was introduced. Um, which was what? Methamphetamine. Methamphetamine. When you're 12. Yeah. The, you were still in Tacoma at that time. Yes. Who introduced you to meth? My mom. Did she same situation pressuring you or what? Um. Well, I kind of wanted to do it. So because you were getting sick of the weed or what? Um. Not necessarily, but that's just kind of what was happening at the time. And um, I mean, I think I felt like I was grown, and uh, I wasn't really. A regular 12 year old at that time i well, probably yeah, had a lot more not. wisdom and things yeah. like that in, in some regards and in none in others but um yeah i mean that's what she was doing she would drag us around to these different drug houses and things like that and i knew what was going on so i was just ready to do it who's us 
Um, me and my brothers and sisters. She'd bring you there for what oh, yeah. reason? Well, I mean, where else is she going to take us? So, no. You know, she didn't have a job. Yeah. So, you know, she lived on welfare. And uh, so, how did she give you guys any food, anything? She had a lot of kids. There right? were a lot of times that we didn't have food. There were a lot of times that we were evicted. There were a lot of times, I mean, there were times when she left us at other people's houses and took off for weeks at a time. And we didn't even know who the people were. So, there, there were a lot of crazy things that happened. Oh, my gosh. Stuff that, if they happen now, people's kids would get taken by CPS so quick. Oh, yeah. I would so imagine. Quick. I'm surprised it didn't happen back then. I mean, well, I, don't, they I, didn't, I didn't know how the times, you know, I, I wasn't alive back then, so I don't, yeah. I can't say I knew. It was different. It was different. But, I mean, they tried. Child Protective Services um, did come to our house once. I think we were, I was in the fifth grade. And, you know, but the thing is, is that the threat of my mother was much scarier yeah. than the threat of the state. And also, um, I didn't want to go live somewhere else. I mean, granted, I hated the environment well, that I was in. You would rather be with your family. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no yeah. matter... I mean, you're probably used to the, you know, the the things that worked around there, like the drugs and everything, but you'd yeah. still probably rather be with family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so your mom had been smoking meth. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Meth, well, meth back then, people didn't smoke meth. So What did they do? Uh, they snorted it, sure. ate it, or uh, injected it. So, but she had been a meth user for your childhood, right? Yeah. And probably, like, in exa- like, I'm not exactly sure when meth really hit the scene. Um, but, uh, yeah, she. I mean, she was definitely doing pills, doing uppers and everything drugs. else uh, before meth hit the scene. And then when meth hit the scene, it was a meth thing. So. so your first time smoking was with you and your mom? Well, first time I ever did meth, it was in lines. They didn't smoke it back then. I'm so sorry. It's I just totally, keep, it's, it's totally, just how it is in my you. mind. Sorry. It's, it was, it's just yeah. because it was a really long time ago. Yeah. Now everybody smokes meth. I was going to say. Yeah. I, I couldn't even. I, I don't way, actually picture doing it any other different. way. But yeah. yeah so your first time you, you used meth was with with your mom? Yeah. Just your mom? Yeah, my mom and my brother, brother. and his friend okay. and my brother's girlfriend. Where was this at? Uh, at our house. And did she say, like, we're going to do this? Was it a plan or did one yeah, day she Yeah, it was a plan. I mean, you know, she knew that I wanted to and uh, there was a plan being made that we were going to do it that night. And so how did, you, how did you take it that night? I mean, I snorted it. And how did it feel? Um, was it instant or was it take a while? I feel like I, I don't even really feel like I felt it. So... You you feel like it just didn't happen, or yeah, I felt like it was just not really a thing. So you weren't higher. I mean, you probably were, but you I didn't probably feel was, like but it. I just didn't feel like it. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't very good. I don't know. But then I had done it a number of times after that. And to be quite honest with you, it made me feel very ill um, physically because you I was throw up. Yes, I would throw up regularly when I used meth or when I and I started using cocaine on my own right after that. Uh, some guy picked me and my friend up. We were hitchhiking. We were like 12, almost 13 and um, took us to his house and did coke with us. So crazy. Like, I can't even imagine I that. can't believe that. I cannot even imagine. Like, the stuff that happened in my life when no, I was young. I'm just young. hearing it compared to, like, <laughs> my life when yeah. I was 12. God knows. I was probably, I don't know, playing sports and hanging out yeah. with my friends or something. Well, that's, that's just, really what I wanted to be doing. Yeah, no, of course. You that's know? what I'm saying. Of course, nobody, no 12-year-old in their right mind would, like, yeah. really want to be doing methamphetamine and cocaine. Yeah. But, you know, it's how you were raised and everything in your life kind of yeah. shaped it around it. So it seemed, I guess, maybe not as abnormal to you yeah. um, than it would be to someone like me looking back, you know, like, wow. Um, but so you started doing meth, you started doing cocaine. And I don't remember what you said, which one was dep- more dependent or addictive. What, well, they're both pretty similar, really. Like, are they more um, chemical or psychological? They're, they're, they're psychological. Um, 
And drugs were a lot different back then. There wasn't a bunch of stuff in them. So, but you know, I always felt sick. Like I was really, um, I don't, honestly, I don't know how grown men ever picked me up. I, I looked, I know I looked super young because I was a very underdeveloped girl. I was tall and skinny and I was yeah. a late bloomer. And, um, uh, but I was, you know, I was really thin as a kid. Yeah. And, um, so doing those drugs and staying up all night and I would become dehydrated probably. I'm guessing I wasn't drinking anything. I definitely wasn't eating anything. And I always, would become nauseous and ill. I would always vomit. So I didn't really enjoy them, but I just kept doing them. And I honestly, like, sort of reflecting back, the year between fifth and sixth grade, like, things had become extremely violent in uh, our home. My mom had become extremely abusive toward me. Um, And the others, or just you? Mostly me. I mean, she was somewhat abusive to my brother, but... um, What would she do? um, Like, for example, I was in a... I was in the Young Ambassadors, which was a tumbling group. And we what does would, that mean? So, Sorry, I have no like idea. Like gymnastics. Okay. So uh, we would travel around to different high school games in Tacoma and sometimes out of the city and things like that. And we would do these performances. And um, uh, my mom wasn't very supportive of that. I was pretty athletic and always tried to be involved in things like Russian club and math club and the class, you know, I, you know, tried to get nominated as a class president and things like that. And, um, so I was always involved in that kind of stuff. Um, but the fifth grade is like, things got pretty ugly. And, um, like there was this one time I went to practice and my mom was really mad about it and she wouldn't come and pick me up and she made me walk all the way home. And when I got home, she grabbed me by my hair and just leaned me backwards over her lap and just started punching me in my face. Wow. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of what it was like. And, um, and I think that the violence became so bad during that year that I just sort of gave up. Um, I was acting out more at school. Um, I didn't really have a relationship with my sixth grade teacher by the time I got into sixth grade. I had a great relationship with my fifth grade teacher who was somewhat aware of what was going on. Um, and again, I was in accelerated programs in school. And um, But sixth grade, my sixth grade teacher, she was the music teacher for a long time, and then she decided to become an academic teacher. And um, she didn't really like me very much. And I think that um, it made it really hard for me to be in school. And I started lashing out. The violence at home became really intense, and I started lashing out at school. At teachers or students or what? Um, teachers. Teachers. Were you, when you say you were closer with your fifth grade teachers, does that mean that you, like, told, because you had, like, or he, she, you said that they kind of were aware of what was going on yeah. at home. Were you open with no. people about that? Or how so, did they know? Well, so I had a best friend. Um, we're still friends today. Her name is Layla. Awesome. And um, I used to go uh, to her house a lot. And there was this one time she came over to my house. And I, we honestly, we didn't think that it was going to happen. So I snuck into the backseat of her mom's car. We were really just joking around. Mm-hmm. We figured that her mom would notice. And she covered me up with her coat. And we made it all the way back to her house. Well, my mom was really volatile. Like, you can't really joke around with my mom. And so... Right. Um, well, she's passed away, you, so you couldn't really joke around yeah. with my mom. And so um, we made it all the way to Layla's house, and my mom started cussing, going off when she found out I was there, and said, you better get home now. And so um, I was super scared, and uh, Layla's mom, she was pretty aware of what went on. Yeah, well, at that point, of course. And so uh, so she called my teacher. Um you know, prior to that, though, I just had a good relationship with my teacher. Um, and I think because I was just really academically present. And um, 
I just did really well in school. Like that was my superpower, right? That's, yeah. that's what I, and I, that's one of the things I did in my family is I tried to perform so that I would not be focused on, you know? So I tried to do the best that I could in, with things so that the focus wouldn't be on me. And so anyway, so he called me out into the hallway the next day and my mom actually didn't do anything to me that day. And I think because I was so afraid and now somebody else was aware of it. Right. Um, I think had my friend's mom not been aware, I think she would have probably beat the crap out of me when I got home. But um, so my teacher called me out into the hallway the next day and I'm sure he knew, like he was asking me about what happened. Um, and I of course was not forthcoming with the information because I mean, I knew like we had been threatened regularly. If you talk to people about what goes on here, this is what's going to happen to you. And so I definitely wasn't going to give up the information because I couldn't trust that other people were going to keep it to themselves. And I couldn't trust that somebody else wasn't going to try to get me sent into a receiving home. And if I wasn't there, what was going to happen to my brothers and sisters? So, so, you know, um, but you know, my sixth grade teacher, she just, she didn't like you? Uh, you because you I, lash out or what? Well, I don't really know what her problem was with me. I don't think I was a bad kid. I was pretty chill in class. I always focused on my work and stuff. And um, I don't really know. And I, and I also don't think that I felt real safe with most females. So with most women, you know, based on my relationship with my mother. Yeah. So, um, so I definitely wasn't going to talk to her about anything. Uh, and then... Her and I, I don't remember what it was one day in class. I, she accused me of something, and I don't think that I was guilty of it. And she sent me to the principal's office, who was also another woman, and I just, I think I pretty much just cussed them both out. And I ended up going to a different school, and just everything spiraled out, spiraled out of control at that time. And then during the summer, between sixth and seventh grade, uh, my mom brought us over to a friend's house and left me and my brother there. So... And how old were you? I don't know how, I forgot how grades and ages were. I think I was 13. 13, 14. Mm -hmm. And she took you and your brother during the summer before middle school or whatever Mm -hmm. and left you at someone's house. Yeah. What do you mean? Just left us there. I I mean, it was a friend of hers that we knew who they were, but um, her and the friend, you know, went out to a bar and my mom just didn't come back for weeks. Just kind of left us there. So that's how you spent most of your summer? I mean, yeah, but we were kind of free spirits at that time. Like mm-hmm. we were super familiar with running around the city and things like that. So, um, and her friends, you know, she had kids too. She was there though. Like she was in and out of her house. My mom just didn't come back. So we just hung out with her kids and, and that's just kind of what it was like when I was growing up in Tacoma. Like a lot of us kids were just kind of doing what we wanted. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like it. It sounded like there wasn't that much worry about where you are. No. You dropped off someplace for weeks at a time. No. Yeah. And so that's when you were 13, 14, we'll just say middle yeah. around that. Um, and so by that time you had been, I mean, methamphetamine, were you still doing it a lot? Um, I wasn't doing it a lot, but I did it whenever I really got an opportunity to. Which was when? I don't know. Uh, anytime I went over to my older brother's and his girlfriend's house. Um, they had, uh, a lot of your siblings were just into drugs? Well, no, but my older brother, his girlfriend, uh, his girlfriend's mom, uh, sold and had and did drugs all the time, and so they were really chemically addicted. Mm-hmm. So, and so, how long did it last until you started getting into what heroin was that next? Yeah, so heroin didn't happen for a while. Um, okay, 
What, I, what was how about this? How, what was after 13, 14 years old, still doing meth? Yeah, I started smoking stuff? crack at fourteen. That's crack. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you explain to me the difference between that and cocaine? Or is it the same thing? I mean, because people sa- say it's, it's crack cocaine. It's the same drug, so it's just in different forms. So cocaine, you, cocaine, you're sniffing and so like yeah, that. Yeah. So you can take the powder and then you uh, change the chemical makeup mm-hmm. by adding things or cooking it in ammonia. You heat it up in ammonia or what does that mean? Uh, you take some ammonia and you. Uh, no, sorry, like what? Uh, sorry, what is ammonia? Ammonia is a chemical that you can use to clean your house. Oh, so it's just a cleaning product, like mm-hmm. a Clorox or something like that. Yeah, something oh. similar. Yeah. And this was at 14, you said. Yeah. So was this during seventh grade? I'm guessing, or it was summer the summer after seventh grade. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, okay. So you're mm-hmm. still middle school. Yeah. And who introduced you to to crack? Uh, this guy, he was like 26. I was over, I, of course, uh, you know, I was, it was another summer where I was running wild. Um, a whole bunch of stuff happened in that year. There was a lot that happened in that year, but, um, uh, I was hanging out with a friend of mine and, um, her mom was never home. Her mom worked all the time. So her house was a party house. A lot of us teenagers and stuff. She had an older brother. Uh, his name was Jimmy, and uh, we used to all we used to hitchhike down to the waterfront all the time and drink beers. We would get you know we had bum beers from all these older teenagers and stuff. Yeah. And some of the older people that were down there driving and showing off their cars and stuff. And um, we came back one night, and her brother, who had been in and out of prison, was smoking cocaine. He was smoking crack. And so that's how you started. Mm-hmm. And is that more psychological or? Yeah, it's yeah, it's more psychological. And it's how, sim- how it's it, similar to that. How does it feel? Um, it's a stimulant, so it makes you feel extremely energized. Uh, when you smoke crack, it it's a very euphoric feeling initially. Like happy? Um, it's, I, I, I mean, I know I euphoria honestly, is kind of like a happy It would be really hard for me to explain how it makes you feel. Well, of course, I can't get ever get the understanding it's, unless um, I've tried it. But I was saying, I'm just trying to get like understanding. It's happy, sort of, except for it's not like ha-ha, laughy, laughy, happy. It's... Um, your heart races and your head feels like it might potentially explode, but it's um, a really good feeling. Um, and the taste was uh, really sweet. And really? Um, yeah, the taste was very attractive, and the way that it felt made me feel really good. And um, and to be honest with you, I sort of I liked it so much that I was seeking it out all the time. So that and was the first time that you were like, I like wanted like to I get after this. a drug. Yeah, that was the first time I ever was like, I love this drug. Did you ever go to school high? Uh, no, I just didn't go to school. Oh, you dropped out. Yeah. After like seventh yeah, grade. Yeah, after that year, yeah, I dropped out. So what were you doing with? So your the, time? I think the last year I went to school was. Um, I was in and out. Like I did a couple days here and there in the eighth grade, and, and then that you're was done. it. And then I just quit. Did you only drop out? Your brothers, sisters, your friends? Uh, my older brother didn't. He didn't go to school. Um, my I have my other older brother John. He left after my stepdad died, and he went down to live with my dad. I went in with them for a minute, and then his uh, my dad's wife at the time was um, she went. She just cussed me out this one day, and and it just like sort of crushed me internally. Uh, and I was like, if somebody's gonna treat me that way, it's gonna be my own mom. It's not going to be her. Yeah. So um, so I left. So my my older brother, he finished high school. He Yeah, he did really well. Um, and then uh, my younger, two of my younger brothers and sisters, they are also, uh, they've had issues with drugs and alcohol. Well, mm-hmm. all but one of us. 
the one that went to college the youngest high school the youngest one no he he has problems with alcohol so and i think you know it's an effect of uh abuse like a lot of it of course you know so um but um uh my youngest sister does not she's the youngest of seven so she is not chemically dependent she's never been chemically dependent that's great yeah well i was uh kidnapped at the end beaten at the age of 16. um so and i came home they dropped me off they cut my hair off with a knife and uh spray painted me black and uh, handcuffed me to the outside of a car and drove while another car drove at me because a guy had sexually assaulted me and somebody watched but when i I this is a lot Oh, randomly. This is well. Just, yeah. It's not necessarily, but like, so this is the the premise to why my sister is not chemically dependent. It's okay. part of the reason. Because we were we were just talking about like you just dropped out of school in eighth grade. Yeah, and yeah, then and then bam, on. I'm at sixteen. Well, this really has to do with the reason why my sister's not chemically okay. dependent. So I showed up on the doorstep, mm-hmm. and they didn't recognize me because I was spray painted black. Was. My hair was cut off with a knife. I was beaten, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and I told my sister, this is what happens when you do drugs. And That must be a scare tactic. Well, you know, I mean, that's the thing. I, well, I guess it wasn't a scare tactic. It was reality. I'm just uh, yeah. saying it must have been. The, I just didn't. I didn't want my siblings to yeah. experience that. I just didn't, you know. So, but we can get to that if you want. I mean, you. I think you're going <laughs> to my whole life story by the time we're done here. Yeah, well, probably. I, I just, you just brought that up talking on the subject of your sister. Yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, we were right at that point anyways. But yeah. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's I mean there was good. definitely a lot that went on between fourteen and sixteen, but yeah. I mean, I'm that's, that's telling you, my life is like this whole this smorgasbord of traumatic events. I mean, that I didn't necessarily recognize as traumatic events. That was just my life. Well, that's yeah, that's what you were you saying know? earlier. Because if you're so used to that, you just kind of think it's normal. Yeah. Or just kind of. It, it is just this what it is. Yeah. I mean, but granted, at sixteen, after that kidnapping event, you probably were like, "What the?" I hell? tried. I that was the first time that I was. Uh, I wished that I was dead, and I tried to throw myself in front of a moving car. So yeah. And so during your eighth grade, ninth grade year, what, what would have been your eighth grade, ninth grade year? Because you kind of dropped out after a little while in eighth grade. What was the instance with? where you told your sister not to do drugs when you were kidnapped and everything. Like, how does that happen? Okay, so there was a lot of stuff that went on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had met a bunch of people in the area, and uh, I was just doing more and more drugs. Started doing more meth. This is 16 years old? 15, 15. and then into 16. And so um, I, oh, and then wait a minute. Okay, so after crack, then I ended up uh, getting arrested. And I don't even remember how I got arrested. I just got arrested, and I was in juvenile hall. And the only way they would release me, and I was 15. I was I was in juvenile hall when I turned 15, I think. The only way they would release me is if I went to live with my mom. My mom at the time was living in Longview. So, um, yeah, she moved. No. So I didn't even know. So, um, so I went to live with her. And... Uh, and it just so happened that Longview had all kinds of Mexican guys. So... Uh, and there were, there was a lot of cocaine, lots and lots of cocaine everywhere in Longview. And so, and my mom and her husband were smoking a bunch of weed and they started selling weed and, um, and they were also like doing other drugs and I started hanging around, like I would skip school. I started ninth grade, but I started skipping immediately. Um, I remember I was in a diving class or something and I didn't break the water appropriately and hurt my neck and I got a bunch of pain pills and... I didn't like them, so I started selling them at school. And then I, that's how I started to meet some of the people 
that did that kind of stuff. And um, I just started skipping all the time and meeting all these different people in the community. And most of them were drug addicts. And, and that's kind of like 15. That was the age for me where I sort of made that conscious choice that my life is going to go down this path. I think there could have been some hope prior to that had the right person landed in my life. Uh, so I went to live with my mom. I really started doing a lot of cocaine. I met some guys uh, that were criminals. Um, they were doing a lot of burglaries and Longview? stuff. Longview? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and um, some of them were older. I met my very first boyfriend. Um, when and, you were 16? Mm-hmm, and he was 21. And um, um, there was this guy that she was buying drugs from, and I started hanging out with him. And uh, we were kind of seeing each other for a little while. And then um, uh, he ended up, like, we ended up not hanging around for a long time. And then he had this girlfriend I didn't know about. And then her and I became friends. And then he tried to uh, get me to sleep with him after I had become friends with this girl. But you and, had a boyfriend at the time, right? Oh, uh, no. He, he went to prison. Okay. So he, had a, he was actually very abusive. And uh, I ended up coming up here and left him down there. So um, there's just, there's always so much that it's hard to, lot. Hard to yeah. keep up. So, Definitely. Um, but he became immediately physically abusive to me, um, which in reality wasn't abnormal, right? It's everything that it's I was... How it's been. Right. And so, um, so anyways, uh, this guy had come down and, you know, to this house that I was at, and he came up in the room. I was trying to sleep. And he forced me to have sex with him. And um, a couple days later, somebody pulled up to me on the street. I talked to one person about it the next day, but I knew this guy's capabilities. I knew that he was big on kidnapping and beating people. He had done it to my brother, um, except for my brother beat him up. But um, and, you know, uh, can but, you explain to me the relation with him, like who he was again? This guy, he was a drug dealer. That you just got drugs from? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like I hung out with him. He was a few years older than me. Uh, I met him. I think. I don't remember if I met him through my friend or through my mom, but my mom was buying drugs from this guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I just started hanging out with him. He was hanging out with an old uh, childhood friend also. So I went out and hung out with them guys a few times. And, um, and then we did sort of see each other, kind of. He wasn't my boyfriend or anything, but, um, but we stopped. And he had a girlfriend, and then he came up because he was a huge drug dealer. Like, he sold lots and lots of drugs. And I think he just sort of did what he wanted to do, and he thought he was going to do it with me that night. Well, he did, but I wasn't consenting Wait, to he it. He raped you? He and did. then what happened the next day when you sold somebody? Um, I just felt super uncomfortable about it, and she was just really supportive. And then a few days later, somebody pulled up, that I, somebody that I knew, that was friends with the friend and this guy, um, and said, we know what happened to you, and somebody saw it. And um, and at that point, I was really scared because first of all, it was a car full of people. I knew what this guy was capable of, right? Um, and I was scared about what was going to happen to me. So uh, a few days later, I was went up to my friend's house, and um, there was strict like we had these strict rules like you don't tell anybody that I'm here. And um, one of the guys, and this was a super huge party house, and one of the guys told somebody that I was there. And he's like, oh, I thought it was okay because it was this other person and it's not him. And I'm like, dude, you can't. Word gets around. Well, and that's the thing because people have a price tag. People that do drugs will regularly sell other people out. And um, two guys showed up with guns and handcuffs and um, 
kidnapped me out of the house and handcuffed me to a steering wheel and drove me out to a really rural area. Handcuffed you to the steering wheel? What do you mean? Handcuffed me to the steering wheel of the car so that I couldn't get out oh, if see, they I got see. out of the car. Okay. Yeah. So Where did they, where did they go? Um, so they picked up a bunch of people. Um, so there was a carload of people, and we drove out to this place called Hearts Lake. There was a shooting range out there, and it's really secluded, and uh, there were like eight people, and they pulled me out of the car, and uh, the guy said, say what I did to you now, and I said it. I said, you, you made me and you made me Excuse my language. That's fine. Um, and that's exactly what I said to him. And uh, he called me a liar. And they start like, the people started to beat me up. All of them? All eight? No, there were, no, some of them were my friends. And they forced some of my friends to come out there and watch. Um, so two or three of them started to beat me up. And then there was this one girl in particular that just kept kicking me and kicking me on the ground. And uh, so... They beat me up for a while. I didn't fight back. Um, I was pretty sure that they something they would have killed me or something. Like mm-hmm. I was scared to death. These are all people that are in their twenties. Yeah, I was they don't care. They didn't so. care. And uh. this guy sold thousands and thousands of dollars worth of drugs on a regular basis. And so, um, so they were really committed to whatever it was that he wanted them to do. And um, so. Uh, they stood me up, and that's when, you know, they pushed me against the car, and the girl started to cut all of my hair off, and then they sprayed With me. a knife? Yeah. Okay. And she was threatening to cut my fingers off, and um, they spray-painted me. Uh, they spray-painted on my shirt. I got My wrists were, like, all cut up from the handcuffs, and they took me around to the other side of the car, and they handcuffed me to the door handle. And that's door handles used to come out from the car. And so they handcuffed me to the door handle. And the car that I was handcuffed to started driving. And then another car started to drive at me. And so I was, like, trying to brace, you know, pull myself up on the edge of the car. And it almost started dragging me. And then finally they put me inside of the car. And they drove me back. And then they threatened me the entire ride to my mom and stepdad's house. My mom was actually serving time in jail for growing the weed at the time. Mm -hmm. And they took me to my stepdad's house. And they were trying to force me to um, commit to stealing their stereo equipment and all this other stuff and giving it to them. Um, And my sisters answered the door, and they didn't know who I was. And uh, and I told them what happened. And and I said to my sisters, I said, "Um, this is what happens when you do drugs. And um, so anyways, I went to go stay with a friend. My mom told her told her husband to kick me out of her house that that's what I deserved and so um sorry um anyways uh so one of my friend's moms said yeah you can stay here but you have to turn them into the police and turn so, the, the people that beat you up yeah so I did I picked them out of a lineup and and all kinds of stuff and they never prosecuted them and then a couple months later they lit my grandmother's house on fire they the- um, all yeah. eight, those people, the same people? Yeah. So, and the group of them that, that did the majority of the damage, three of the eight were actually my friends and were made to come along and watch it. And Well, they're not real friends well, then. Yeah. I mean, well, I tend to question that. So I would. Um, I'm sure that, yeah. So, but there was a five core people that were there and... Um, Anyways, uh, my grandmother's house was, there was gasoline that was dumped underneath 
the sun porch and they lit it on fire and um, my mom my mom and I got a call from my grandmother uh, and we went there so she made it out okay though right yeah okay. yeah so the whole house didn't burn down just the sun porch was they caught it because they were awake so they caught it before mm-hmm. you know anything bad happened so um, and then yeah, I mean and that was just kind of that you know I just kind of ran I didn't want to go to sleep after that I was afraid so I was 16 years old. Somebody gave me my first handgun at that time, and I did everything in my power to stay awake, just to stay awake, so that people couldn't get me. So. And the, you say you were 16 mm-hmm. at the time, and since your mom made your what stepdad kick you out of the house, yeah. where did you live? Just kept living in houses. Um. So yeah, I just kept staying places. Um, you know, with friends, whoever would let me stay there, or a lot of times I would just hang out at drug houses. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and, you know, I didn't really have to worry about drugs. Uh, my mom also had other friends that she knew that liked me and that they would let me hang out with them. And so I just kind of traveled around doing drugs and trying to stay awake. Always in Tacoma area? Yeah. Um, did you ever have a boyfriend after that? Um, I mean, it, it, with, I mean, your teenage years, maybe early 20s. So I did. I so after that happened, uh, I started drinking also, mm-hmm. which didn't really help me stay awake very much. But yeah. um, I became pretty suicidal and uh, tried to throw myself in front of a car. Oh yeah, you did bring that up. I sorry, yeah. I, I was gonna bring that up. I kind of forgot how to. I forgot to put that in the pattern. Yeah, no, it's okay. That was that, at 17, that actually, you say? Yeah, so that yeah. was right before. It was like right. No, yeah, it was at it was at seventeen, and so I don't remember exactly what month the kidnapping and stuff happened in, but oh, yeah. um, but so not long after that, I became I and when I used to drink, I w- it would be a blackout almost every you time. You would just have a, few, a couple beers or something like that. It would just be like you just do it. To, yeah, oh, to I numb. would drink. Yeah, no, it was uh, like I would just straight shot Jack Daniels or mm-hmm. whatever was available, and so. Um, and I probably didn't eat, which meant that, you know, I would black out pretty quickly. Yeah. And so, um, so, uh, no, I tried to throw myself in front of a car. Turns out it was a cop. And so how, what, explain that to me. Yeah. Like what happened? What, you just got really drunk one night or you just like, yeah, what? I was like super drunk and just you. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I was drinking with a bunch of people Yeah, but and I left, I left away from a party and you just walked. Yeah. And you just saw a car, and you just like yeah, I just like try to like go like throw myself on the ground to get let it run me over. I was trying to do it fast enough so that they couldn't stop. Yeah, and so they did stop though, right? Yeah, they, and it was cop. Hit you, and what did he do? He took me to the psych ward. He took me to a really? psychiatric ward. Yeah. For he didn't even try to th- book you or anything like that. No. And how long did you spend there? So they locked me in there for like seventy-two hours, and then they sent me to drug and alcohol treatment. And um, how did they know that you needed that treatment? I mean, you could my have mom been some came drunk. There. Oh. I was a juvenile. Oh yeah, that's I right. I was a juvenile, right. so they called my mom. Right. And my mom, the drug dealer, came down to the psych ward, mm-hmm. and was I was, it was a bad scene. Like it was a bad scene. First of all, I was extremely psychotic at the time. Uh, this big six foot something security guard cut my clothes off of me. And Why? because they wanted to strap me down and put their stuff on me, their clothes. So I went crazy. Mind you, I'm a little skinny chick. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm already out of my mind because of that guy. And he's just standing in the room. And, like, I was completely exposed. And 
He wasn't a medical staff or anything. He was a security Just guard. Putting the gown on or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, not even that. They had me strapped down. They had me in five point restraints. I see. So yeah, they had my arms out, my legs strapped down, and my head strapped to a table. And then my mom came, and uh, and she was like, "No, I'm not going to help you." And so she told them that I needed drug and alcohol treatment, which wasn't it's, inaccurate. It's true. It wasn't yeah. inaccurate, but I just thought it was just. Like, I was like, you've got to be kidding me, yeah. lady. And then when I was being released from treatment, they sent me to her house. So uh, it just. How long were you in treatment for? Um, I was in there. I think I was in there for like three weeks. They accused me of using, which wasn't true. I was on a outing with my mom and her husband. And using they had while been, you were there? Yeah. Well, they accused me of using on an outing. Oh, oh, and oh I see. I, I gave them a UA outing. and I even told them to take a blood test and which everything came back clean, but they kicked me out anyway. I was really mad about that, so. But it worked, right? I mean. The treatment? The treatment. No. <laughs> oh, I thought you said that, he, I thought you said, I mean, you were clean the whole time, and so I, I would assume that. I was clean the three weeks when oh, I was, was in only, there. it was only three weeks. Yeah. Okay. And then they released me to my mom's house, the drug dealer. So then, perfect. So I got yeah. high. <laughs> and I, th- I, I, thought, got I thought, for some reason, I thought you were there for a few months, and you were no. doing fine. Okay, yeah, three no, weeks. No, so. I was there for like three weeks, and, um, and then I got released to my mom's house. And I got high the night that I got out. Uh, of course. So, yeah, I, you know, and that was like, and even for me, a person that didn't really sort of have any, uh, I didn't know anything about treatment, you know, but yeah. I knew that like going to my mom's house was a terrible idea. It was the opposite of treatment. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, really, I wasn't trying to be clean and sober anyway. That, that wasn't my idea. That was her idea. Yeah. Well, like you said, it was, I don't know, I don't remember exact phrases, but you were saying how... Like that was the way you're gonna be. Like that's. Yeah. It was yeah. It was a decision that I made, and I was gonna do my best to be the best at it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just I couldn't see my way out of my addiction. I just mm-hmm. couldn't. And as the trauma continued to increase, um, my drug use increased, and it just became my way of life. And um, yeah, I mean, I was really far gone by that time and so anyways but that led into while I was in treatment I started to write this guy that I knew from this one house that I used to go to and because he was in jail Mm -hmm. and uh, he was like 23 and um, he turned that ended up being my first husband him and I got together after um, we got together after I got out of treatment after he got out of jail you were 18 no I was 17 so 17 Mm -hmm. yeah and was he at all on drugs or anything like that oh yeah Absolutely. And did he introduce you to heroin? No, I didn't. I didn't start doing heroin until after he went to prison. The, okay. the what I don't know how many times. So um, get out of treatment. Go to your mom's. Then go to you. my mom's. He started coming around, and he was a drug addict. Okay. So this guy did, and then he started buying drugs from my mom. Well, I was still drinking. I was an alcoholic too. Mm-hmm. I really liked to drink, and I was drinking with some friends, and I was drinking tequila. And my mom had kicked me out. And this guy was actually staying at my mom's house. That should have been an indicator at the time. But um, anyways, uh, and I beat my mom up for the first time because she tried to assault me. And wait, wait, Sorry, how? Like you were at, you were at so you were I went over friends. To my, I actually, I went over, I was with my friends. We were getting drunk and went over to my mom's to buy some drugs from her. Yeah. And this guy was over there, the guy mm-hmm. that I was, the guy that I married, my first husband. And... Um, my mom like started going, just talking crap, and got up like she was gonna assault me, and I beat her up. Why well, didn't even really beat her up? Actually, I grabbed her by the top of her hair, and sat her down on the couch, and uh, then I just told her it's not happening. Like it's you're not it, you're not touching me, and um, 
And I think I felt pretty empowered. And then I actually beat her up, I think, for the first time, probably a couple months later, because him and I, I don't know if I went back and started staying at my mom's a little bit or what happened, but him and I were together and uh, we started committing crimes. We started burglarizing houses and I stole a car. Just B&E's? Yeah. Would you do it when people were there, weren't there? Would you uh, plan it out? They weren't there. I mean, we would just randomly choose houses that looked like people weren't there mm-hmm. and, you know, get guns or stereos or whatever and then sell them for drugs. So that's, so was, were you married by then or you were just together with No, him? we were just together then. I and wasn't married when, yet. I didn't, when did you get I didn't, married? I got married to him after he got out of prison. So we, um, so we were doing uh, burglaries and we were doing lots of drugs together. Yeah. And um, he was skilled in this area already. And so, um, and it took me away from being dependent on my mom for anything. And so we had done this one burglary and I had stolen this car. And so we were driving this van around. It was a van that I stole. And um, Mm -hmm. we were driving this van around and we were burglarizing people's houses. And we had gotten all these guns. Like we had gotten this whole entire gun collection. And my mom tried to steal them from us. And were, were, you, were you keeping them at her house? Well, they were in the van, and we oh. had them in this barn, and we left for a little while with some friends. Mm-hmm. And then she tried to stop. Like, she tried to take, she tried to, well, she actually was successful in stealing the stereo, and she sold it. Like, we had this, this back when stereos were, like, in these, you know, just tall cabinets, and there were all these different components and yeah. stuff. And, um, and we had this really nice one, and... Um, she stole it from us. She sold it to this guy, I think, for drugs. And then she tried to steal our guns, and we knew where they were. Uh, so I actually beat the crap out of her in her house that day because we went to get our stuff because it was gone. And so yeah. we went to get our stuff, and she tried to stop me, and I just... Beat her up. I beat the holy living hell out of her from one end of her house to another. And I felt pretty good about that just based on all of the things that had happened to me. And Definitely. Um, but then what happened after that is the abuse transferred onto my sister. So not good. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, uh, we went to her husband's work and broke into his trunk and stole all of our guns back. And we got this car from a friend. I thought we borrowed it, but my boyfriend, you know, later husband, uh, stole it. And then we drove down to Longview and we went to go sell all the guns. And then we broke into this business when we were down there we broke into it was like a footlocker or something and stole all of this gear and we were selling it down there for a bunch of coke the cops ended up surrounding the motel that we were in and um we got arrested and he went to prison and i went to juvenile hall so because you weren't i was still a kid wow yeah so how long was he in prison he was in prison i want to say maybe like 22 months or something no not uh, not that bad no i thought you were gonna say like few years was going to be like, wow, it's a long time, but 22 yeah. months. Is yeah, no, it wasn't too bad. Crazy. And then, but during that time, and then I come back to Tacoma, me and my mom, of course, were still, we had talked again. She wasn't with her husband at that time. And now I was doing a bunch of cocaine. And, and then I met this other guy. Uh, and uh, I ended up getting pregnant by him. While you're other guy was in jail yeah but i wasn't really staying with that guy so i mean it was what it was Mm -hmm. and so um i I was a kid and i was a drug addict so uh but i got together with this other guy and um uh got pregnant and he got shot and killed when i was pregnant um well and during the time that i was with him i was with him for like seven months before he was murdered but um drug related uh i mean technically yeah uh but he had 
there was all kinds of crazy stuff that had occurred during the time that we were together, and these girls had come in and jumped me when I was asleep on his couch. And uh, and then, like, maybe a month, a month and a half after that, maybe two months, uh, he was he was shot and killed. Um, and then... Uh, so you were how old when you had your first baby? I was 19. Wow. Yeah. And single mother, were you living with your mom, too? I was living with my grandmother. Grandma, okay. Mm-hmm. And then your future husband? He got out. Of, he got out the day, like, well, he got out on my son's due date, but I didn't have my son for five more days. Mm-hmm. So, and then he immediately got back into the picture. And uh, and then we immediately started doing drugs and stuff again. And my mom was with Did this, you do drugs when you were pregnant? I did. Like what kinds? Everything? Um, when I was pregnant with my son, I mostly smoked weed. I probably did. I probably drank a little bit in the beginning, but I smoked weed throughout that pregnancy. And um, I was selling weed and smoking weed. It was actually a pretty great time in my life. Um, and Why uh, is that? Because I just didn't have any outside pressure. There was nobody beating up on me. Uh, I wasn't committing crimes. I wasn't doing a bunch of crazy drugs. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, and I was just like enjoying my life with my friends. Yeah. And my gra- me and my grandmother had a great relationship. And yeah. So. Well, for your life, it's positive. for my life. It was me super chill. It, I'm like that doesn't seem like the most amazing position. But after for you me, know, that was for like, you standing up to your mom and you. Yeah. Everything sounds good. And he came back to the picture. You guys started doing drugs again after you had your first son. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, then I, and then like, like 19 and 20 ish. Yeah. So yeah, it was. Um, so I turned 19 in October, and then I had my son in November. So and then he got he got out in November, and so by February I think we were doing a bunch of drugs, and then my mom had this other guy, and then my mom and them like teamed up, and uh, yeah, it was just a crazy. It was just crazy. Um, you know, more crimes, more drugs. Uh, I started to get arrested. For stuff, you know, uh, yeah. took the charges for him and his brother, uh, a cocaine charge. Uh, wasn't my drugs, but um, I got pregnant. Uh, like when my son was, I think my son was like five months old. Um, I did not want to be pregnant with his kid because he was really fi- physically abusive towards me. And so, your husband? Yeah. Oh yeah. And then we got pre- We got. I got pregnant, and then I married him, trying to do the right thing. But I really didn't want to have his kid. Um, but like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know, realize, I don't even think I realized that I had my own agency in any kind of way. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then by the time I had my daughter, which I did do drugs, uh, when I was pregnant with her, uh, I, uh, I smoked crack. Um, you think it's affected her right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it probably has. I don't know if you could tell, like. Yeah, I think so. I mean, can anybody else tell? No, but do I recognize things that happen? I do because I've like scientifically dissected my life, you know, my entire life. I don't know if my mom did drugs when I was pre- when she was pregnant with me, but um, like inability to deal with emotions um, and impulsiveness and different things like that, like. No, I recognize things in my kids. Uh, And, um, you know, so I ended up getting pregnant again. Like, him and I were doing a lot of cocaine. After my daughter was born, I got pregnant again. Third time? Yeah. And he was beating me regularly. Like, well, throughout the whole pregnancy with my daughter, my oldest daughter, uh, he, I had black eyes every week. Um, Just for no reason? 
Yeah, a lot of the times just his insecurity, really. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure I was mouthy, but, um, you know, was like he wasn't fulfilling his job as a husband. And obviously not. I was a kid and I uh, had no idea what I was doing. And I was regularly fighting against him and my mom and my mom's boyfriend. And, you know, I was regularly left without food and money and things like that. And um, And so I just would rely on the drugs that I got the opportunity to do and uh, I definitely wasn't the mom that I had planned to be, you know, and uh, like, and I knew that I wasn't capable of becoming that. And um, you just didn't have enough faith in yourself. I didn't have any skills or anybody around you to motivate you or anything or to support me or anything. And so, um, yeah. So my third pregnancy, uh, I was doing cocaine daily, daily. And you were addicted, like, big time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, crack dealers were, I had some crack dealers that were my friends. And they gave me great deals. They hated my husband. Um, they, everybody always treated me with respect. Um, Why do you think that is? Because of the way, I, probably, that I carry myself. Um, because I was honest and respectable. and Transparent. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't uh, trying to trade my body for drugs. Um, so I got treated in a Better. way that was respectful. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that every crack dealer, you know, there were some that, you know, that they just have judgment of people that smoke crack, and so, which yeah. is whatever, but, um, but you know, so about four months into the pregnancy, uh, I was, I continued to hemorrhage, like I was hemorrhaging. He kicked me down the stairs one day, kicked me in my back down a, a flight of stairs, and I just started hemorrhaging, and. Can you explain to me what that means? Oh, hemorrhaging? Yeah. Yeah, just like bleeding profusely. So I had um, tears in my uterus, and um, and it would cause the cause um, some of the lining and stuff like that to come out. I see. So, um, and I definitely didn't look like I was four months pregnant, uh, and I was probably, I probably weighed maybe 100 pounds at that. And so, and I'm, oh, five, wow. I'm five foot nine, so <laughs> that's not a very healthy look. Yeah. So, um you know, my kids, I know, were definitely impacted by my drug use, you know, during that time. And uh, I mean, regularly, he was beating me regularly. And so uh, I ended up aborting that child. Your third one? Uh-huh. So yeah. you only had two? Yeah, at that time. I have three kids now. Yeah, but at the time. At that time, yeah. I didn't want to have another kid by him. Yeah, um, I And I, I hated him. Um, at that time and I just felt trapped like I couldn't get away from him and when I was trying to get away from him there were times there was this one time I had started to call the police on him and um, granted I was the one that ended up in jail for domestic violence but um, there was this one time I went to a domestic violence shelter and he was literally across the street from where I was and there was another time my grandmother had moved and I was staying in her apartment and the outside of the apartment there was really no way to get in to the apartment. It was a security building and there wasn't there unless he stole a ladder or something, but he ended up crawling through the window and wow. yeah, it was just really crazy. And he would stalk me and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, and I was super scared of the guy. Like I was really scared of him. And so, um, he's serving a life sentence right now and I'm not upset about that. Where is he serving it? He is in, I think, I think he's in Clallam Bay, but I'm not exactly sure. And what, what, what did he do? Uh, he robbed a store. Well, he's done a number of things. So he probably just stacked up stuff. He stacked yeah. up stuff. He got three strikes. You're out. Um, 
He robbed a store at Knife Point that time, and they struck him out. But prior to that, like, he had tied up these old people with phone cords in their house. They were elderly, and he kicked them until their ears started bleeding so he could get their PIN numbers and things like that. Like, he, um, yeah, he's just not a very savory guy. And when did he exit your life? When I, so he actually had warrants out for his arrest, and, um, and I knew it. And... So uh, he was smoking crack with his mom's husband, and they had taken off and took a bunch of money, and they came back, and I ended up uh, escaping out of the house because he was trying to not let me leave. And I ended up escaping, and I went to my grandmother's. With your two kids? Yeah. Well, no, I couldn't take the kids. I just had to leave on my own. Oh, sure. And, okay. But I called. Um, this sounds so terrible from where I come from. People don't do this where I come from, but I called detectives and told the detectives where he was. Because I knew that he had warrants out for his arrest. Does it ter- sound terrible? Because you're like, no snitching or mm-hmm. everything like yeah. that? But yeah. you know, uh, I did it to save my own life. So. Yeah. I, well, I, I don't judge at all on that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say where you come from, it's just like, what, Tacoma, those areas mm-hmm. like that. That's just a big like street thing yeah you just don't do yeah. that i mean i, I know just don't I, do just, that. I just hear i hear about that all the time like i mean my current husband that i am married to uh no i put him in prison so. when was that your second husband no i've been married three times oh, wow. <laughs> this is my last so time. after after you got got the detectives on him where did you go i went to my grandmother's i got my kids okay. and i went to my grandmother's right. and then i got my own apartment and this was what 21 22 uh yeah I guess so, yeah. Probably 21, I think. Um, How'd you get the money to get your apartment? Well, I was on state, you know, state funding. I was on oh, welfare. I so okay. I got my own apartment, and things were going well. And But see, now I had some... Because I had been arrested a few different times for some of the crimes we were committing. Yeah. And, um, and so I was facing a little sentence, and I got sent away to go to treatment. And my friend that I had uh, watching my house while I was gone... Well, her boyfriend was a gang member, and I didn't really, that didn't really compute with me at the time. And so I came back, and I really did have an intention at that time to stay clean and sober when I came back, um, but it didn't happen. So there was like a gang situation that happened in front of my house when I got home, and I just kind of, I just kind of submitted. I just didn't have, it might have been different had I had a support system. Well, but, definitely. I, yeah. I would think so. If you had people supporting yeah. you, I don't think a lot of things would have happened that happened. No. Um, whether it was your decision or not. Yeah. But so after, so you get home from jail, bad situations happen, you want to stay clean, you end up not staying clean. Then what happens? Uh, With your next husband, I mean. Well, he went to prison. So um, I stayed married to him for a long time. I didn't want to ever get married again. So, um, and when you find out who I married next. <laughs> your third or your second? My second. Your second marriage, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, so I stayed married to my first husband for 18 years. Oh, wow. I didn't want to get married again. So I just stayed married. And I figured that would prohibit me from getting married. And so um, uh, what happened after that, though, is I just, you know, uh, my kids went to stay with my mom. um, And my mom tried to, you know, I wanted my mom's help. My mom, of course, tried to help herself. She went and got, you know, the, the welfare money put in her name and tried to get my kids taken out of my custody. And, uh, and I just kind of spiraled out of control. And that's when I started using methamphetamine. And I mean, shooting methamphetamine. And sure, then yeah, shortly okay. after that, probably, I don't know, within the next six months, I started to do heroin. And this was when? Like, how old were you? 21, 22. 20. Mm-hmm. 
so you started doing more needle and involved yes, drugs. I started, yeah, I started using the needle and then I, and then I tried heroin for the first time. And you were still living in your apartment? Uh, for a little bit. And then I ended up going to jail from there. And so and then I got evicted from there when I was in jail. And did you not have custody of your kids? Uh, well, I had custody of my kids, but my mom had them in her possession. And then when I got out of jail, um, I think I took them over to my brother's house and then my brother turned them into the sheriff. Cause I, didn't, I was homeless at that oh, time. Oh yeah. So I, I was homeless my, cause my brother just, I don't know. Like I don't have a loving and supportive family. Yeah. I just don't. So, yeah. um, and I was really trying to, you know, get something together so that I could get another place. And, um, my brother turned my kids into the sheriffs and then the state took my kids. So from there, did you get really dependent on heroin? Um, no. So I didn't get dependent on heroin probably until about 23. So I tried it. You were doing it for a little while. Yeah, I tried it here and there. When was the first time you tried it? Um, probably just a little bit after, you know, they were, um, taken. And who tried it with you? Who gave it to you? Well, I got some from a friend of mine. Yeah. So you just did it alone? Yeah. Yeah. How how does it work? Did you, so it was in a needle, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And. I mean, I put it in a needle. But yeah. yeah, but don't you have to boil it under a spoon? Yeah. Like, so, so tell me the process of that. I'm curious about it. So, yeah, you just buy it, and it's gooey and brown, and you just pull a chunk off, and you squirt some water in there, and then you... Put it under a spoon. Put it in a spoon, and you put flame underneath the spoon, and you heat it up. You want to make sure it's good and cooked so that you cook the bacteria and stuff out of it. Okay. And then you draw it up in a syringe, and you put it in your vein. Did you use like a belt or something like that at the point to get the good veins? I or? probably didn't need to at that time. My, I, vein, I just my, don't know how my veins were probably fantastic <laughs> at that time. I just don't know how any of it works. And yeah. so, because to me, based on what I've heard and what, you know, my mom tells me and whatnot, my, my family, my friends tell me like heroin's like the worst it and is. whatnot. And wh- why is that? Because you say, oh, you weren't really dependent on it until a few years later. Yeah. Well, I wasn't doing it regularly. I just tried it. So, so the first time you tried it, what did it feel like? Um, It just felt. I don't know, like, made me feel warm. It made me feel a little bit sleepy. Have you ever taken a Percocet or anything? No, I haven't. Okay, that's good. No. You shouldn't. No, my ever. mom, anytime that. D- it's narcotics up, are like, bad. No, I know. She refuses. Like, if I ever get injured or something yeah. like that, she would never. She's like, you're not getting oxy yeah, or anything. Don't. Like, whenever I've had any physical pain, since I've gotten clean, I've been clean over eight years, I don't take them. Yeah, she told me it's, she doesn't You don't care. need them. I know, she said. If you want to, like if you have anything, like you can reduce the pain and inflammation in your body by using natural things. The food that you eat and herbs. That's and exactly what my dad says. It's yeah. true. He's like, he doesn't like, he doesn't like medicine. He yeah. wants it to do it more it's, natural. It's Oils, bad. minerals, isn't mm-hmm. that, yeah. Yeah. So Western felt, medicine destroys your body. Yeah, that's it, that's what he says about a lot of things yeah. um, when it comes to meds and stuff like that. That's not what they're going to tell you at the doctors. Though. No, I know. He, I mean, he always says that too. Like yeah. you don't ask him because they're not really going to want to sell you yeah. out. Well, to, that's you because know. that's what they've been taught. Th- that's yeah. the thing. And you know, and God forbid I say this out loud on a podcast, but you know, education really is—it's a business, and mm-hmm. the material that we are learning is you know, has been chosen by people, specific mm-hmm. parties. And, you know, big pharma is a huge, huge portion. It's a huge portion of our medical, like, expertise in this country, right? Right. It is. And if we think that big pharma doesn't have anything to do with medical school, like, I think we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. So, of course, that's what doctors are. Because um, I can tell you this, like, since I've been clean uh, over this last eight years, uh, no, I've changed so many things about my life just based on what I put into my body. Yeah. So, 
just uh, well, by what I'm eating. Yeah. Nobody taught me that. Nobody taught me anything about vegetables. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. to answer your question, yeah. never taken Percocet. Good. Never taken those any sort of pills like that. But sorry, you were trying to relate that to something, though. Yeah, no. Um, so because, uh, I mean, that's just what it feels like. So you wouldn't have a reference point. So, um, you know, uh, if you take too many opiates, like if you take too much, it will make you nauseated and potentially vomit, uh, mm -hmm. depending on how much heroin you do. That's what it's like. It doesn't necessarily feel good. How do you know, like, like I, you know, overdosing is a huge thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, for heroin users. Yeah. How do you know too much is too much? Or I don't understand. Like, how do you know what you put in the spoon is not going to be too much? That's why people overdose. You don't, you had no idea. Well, I mean, for there's like a, you, you know, if you're new to it or, uh, you know, you're trying to do it uh, and you don't have any experience with it, you probably check around and people are going to give you a, uh, like, for, for example, the person that I got it from said, don't do more than, you know, this much. And so I didn't um, because there's, of course, a little bit of fear there. You know, some, some people don't necessarily adhere to those warnings. And they end up overdosing. So I have a friend that got high with me the first time, and uh, and he overdosed the very first time. What is what does it mean? Like it means you just did too much, but like yeah, well with heroin it'll kill you. Yeah, because I was wondering if that well, like some people survive overdoses. I think it slows so. down your breathing, and it like stops you. I think I'm not exactly sure what exactly goes on with heroin and stuff. I've never overdosed on heroin. I've overdosed on cocaine, but not heroin. What was it like when you overdosed on cocaine? Oh, I was having seizures, so I don't really know. Did you go to the hospital and everything? No, they threw oh. me in a cold shower. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, wow. So we try not to take people to the hospital if you don't have to, because then you're implicated. Yeah, then they'll be so, wondering what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit different now, but it wasn't then. And um, yeah, I mean, so my friends just cold showered and iced me. And uh, uh, my memory hasn't been the same since, so. And heroin wasn't becoming a huge thing until you were like 23, you said? Yeah. What were the, you said one more drug, start with a B or something earlier when you said it was the ones that weren't chemically dependent, were more psychological. Oh, benzo yeah. benzodiazepines. That is, is that? actually physically dependent. What is that? That Benzos are like Valium, Xanax, things like that. Oh, okay. So mm -hmm. it's not just one thing. It's no. just a bunch of... Okay. It's a family of I see. pills. Like yeah. more pills. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I but see. you can like die from those withdrawals. Oh, yeah, because so. I mean, it's pills, chemicals. Yeah. So... So, yeah. so you started taking those in heroin like 23-ish? Yeah, so... Uh, and you, were, you, weren't, you didn't even have a house. No. You were homeless. I, yeah, pr I mean, I, yeah, I don't even think I realized that I was homeless until I really started to think about that lately. Um, but yeah, I was homeless a lot in my younger life. I just didn't sleep outside. I didn't have... I, I didn't really sleep, but yeah. uh, I would you pass out. House to house kind of thing? Yeah. Because so a, a lot, lot of people times, think homeless kind of... Well, I mean, at least, you know, cause I spend a lot of time downtown. I see a yeah. lot of people that are living in the streets. Yeah. So they're homeless. I mean, someone, a lot of times when someone says, oh, I'm homeless, I would kind of assume that means that they're living on the streets. But right. just to clarify, you were just house to house sometimes. Yeah, I was house to house. Well, mostly what would happen is I would be in cars and I would fall asleep in people's cars because mm -hmm. I would try not to go to sleep, which I was sexually assaulted a number of times. In a car uh, or what? what oh, yeah. Mean? What like, do you mean? Like, for example, um, I was over at a friend's house and I, w I needed a ride to where I was living and because sometimes I would be living somewhere, but um, I passed out in this guy's car, and because my friend said he was okay. Because I were tired, or yeah, I had been up for days, for what, days. That's methamphetamine, yeah, methamphetamine and cocaine. It'll keep you up. It'll mm -hmm. keep you up for days. And so, um, 
So yeah, I got a ride from this guy and I woke up somewhere in Puyallup, like really way out in the boonies. And um, he was, he had my pants down and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I couldn't wake myself up. What do you mean? Like, I just couldn't wake myself up. I was sort of coming too, but I didn't, and I didn't have any strength. I had been up for so many days. I was delirious and I was exhausted and I was weak. And um, I finally was able to fight him off of me. And all I had was like, you know, those little Swiss army knives, but I only had a little one. Like a little, little. So like with a little tiny blade. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so I'm pretty sure I stabbed him in his arm a couple of times, but I made him drive me back. And the thing is, he stopped at my brother-in-law's house, and he had no idea he was stopping at my brother-in-law's house. And my brother-in-law wasn't there, but it let me know that he knew who my brother-in-law was. And um, so after I got this guy to uh, take me back to my house, I then informed my brother-in-law later. A bunch of bad stuff happened to that guy, and every time I saw that guy for years to come, I did stuff or I had people do stuff to him but um but yeah so stuff like that would happen um I had a guy break into I was living in this place uh the place where I was trying to have that guy drop me off at and this other guy I went in I had my roommate lock me in the room um because I had been sexually assaulted a number of times um in a short period and uh a guy broke into my room from the outside he was hanging out with us at the house and then I decided to go to bed and I was locked in mm-hmm. and um and my friend, or the guy, uh, my friend didn't know he was coming in, but he came in through my window and raped me. So how many times since the first incident when you got kidnapped or whatever for claiming that it happened, how many times have you been sexually assaulted or raped or whatever? Maybe you um, don't remember some of them. Maybe you do. I mean, was it just on and off because of the, your situation? Well, there was a lot in? that happened in between 20, let me see. So there was that time... And then there was this guy that came and picked me up, a guy that I'd known since I was 14, and he raped me at gunpoint in a basement. Um, And then there was the guy that woke me up, like he had his hands inside of me and everything. So there was that guy. There was the guy that broke into my bedroom. Uh, I was hitchhiking and got a ride from this other guy, and uh, he tried to... He he wasn't successful in penetrating me or anything, but he, when he was unable to actually sexually assault me, he kicked me out of his vehicle and then ran me over. He um, ran you over? Yeah, like over my arms and legs. So, well, like, I landed outside. No. Um, it was a small car. And so, and I was actually quite surprised because he literally ran me over. And so, um, uh, but, um, so there was that guy. And then, oh, 2016. And I'm trying to think, nothing's happened since then. Um, and I've had I've had people like assault me like when I'm sleeping like you know um, that it's hard to I guess for me it's like hard to really call it like rape but it's still sexual but it's still so a sexual assault still, so I don't know probably at least seven times since yeah I mean that's a, that's just unbelievable it's a lot of times yeah I mean in living in the streets or being homeless sorry hitchhiking stuff it's Stuff yeah. that just happens. It is. Right? Especially if the people, even if you weren't, even if you had a home, like surrounding yourself with the people that you did. Yeah. This stuff that kind of happens along yeah. that, that road. So, so your second husband, when yeah. did that happen? Okay. So, uh, so I'm, I went to prison for the third time in 2009. And um, uh, I decided. I was like, you know, I think I just want love in my life, which I was not willing to commit to people. Uh, after my first husband, I was like, no. 
uh, then, then I decided I would try to, I ended up in a relationship with a woman for about five years. Really? Yes. When was this? Uh, when I was in prison the second time. That's oh, what, that's how I ended up in Seattle because I came here cause she convinced me to come here and her and I were together for a couple years outside of prison. And, um, uh, it was, I mean, it was, it was beneficial. She introduced me to recovery and stuff like that. Uh, I'm decided I'm not a lesbian. And so that, you know, we went our separate ways, yeah. but, um, you know, sometimes your environment will push you towards other things. And so yeah, well, um, being in prison, it's kind of, sometimes it just happens to people, guys, yeah. girls, whatever it is. Yeah. And so, um, that was in 2009, you said, well, I wouldn't know. That was actually back in 90. I got together with her in like 99. Okay, and then I came I here in 2000. So okay. I was with her during that time. And uh, Were you clean after that? Yeah, I was clean for a while. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I was clean for, I don't know, probably almost two years That's after good. getting out of prison. And then my grandmother died, and I was trying to get custody of my kids back. And, How old were they by then? Uh, like 9 and 10, I think. Mm. And... Um, that didn't really work out. I didn't feel like I was capable. I was also very self-centered, and I just didn't think I would do a good job as a parent and thought that they would best be served by somebody else. And so uh, I didn't feel co- comfortable with the decision that I made, and I ended up relapsing behind that. And On my, what? Uh, oh, oh, heroin and cocaine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where'd you get it that time? You just, I mean, it's probably well, not that hard to get Now, I was it, in or? recovery here in Seattle, and I had a sponsee that was in active addiction and I went to the drug house to pick her up and because uh, she kept relapsing and I found out where the drug dealer lived hmm. and I just went over there and knocked on the door. And so you relapsed yeah. and what happened after that? Well then it was it took, took me a while. Um, that's when, now granted prior to that I, I was doing heroin prior to going to prison. Um, Pretty significantly, but nothing compared to what I was doing when I got when I was here in Seattle after my relapse. And so, uh, yeah, I just I really sort of dove deep into the heroin addiction. And um, um, yeah, gosh, my life just really went out of control with the drug use. And she ended up relapsing with me for a little while. How old were you? Thirty. Uh, I was going to say 29. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 29. I think I was 29 when I relapsed, but I remember my 30th birthday was very devastating for me. Why is that? Because I was turning 30. (laughs) Oh, I see. Yeah. And you were just, I just wasn't in my twenties anymore. And my life was not what I hoped it would be. No. You know, it wasn't what you pictured. Yeah. So So. from there you were living in the streets of Seattle or what? No, I had a place. And then I started hanging out with the drug dealer and then uh, we moved in together. We weren't in a relationship, but we lived together Mm -hmm. and we were business partners and I had been working for a long time. So I was getting unemployment. So I had money that was coming in and um, plus I was selling drugs. And so, um, so yeah, I was just partying and then, then I got clean for a minute and then, and then my, girlfriend or ex-girlfriend uh decided to relapse too and so then we went into business together and then we had apartments and stuff the whole time and then we ended up getting clean and then um that well and there was a period of time in 2001 or 2002 where i went on this fishing boat and i had gotten this settlement i ended up getting the settlement so uh and then her and i had started this business together and she was doing the business and uh, I was just giving her money for the business, and then I decided that, well, I just decided I was going to smoke some crack. So I locked the door and took the rest of my money and went and 
did drugs. And then I met my youngest daughter's dad. Well, I met him actually when her and I were selling drugs. But then I looked him up because he was selling heroin. And so... What do you mean you looked him up? Well, I went to find him. Okay. So, you know, I went up to Capitol Hill mm-hmm. searching for him. So, because um, I knew he was selling heroin. So, and I was doing a bunch of cocaine, but you got to level it out, you know. So, uh, so found him and then him and I ended up together and we were doing a lot of drugs and, um, uh, and I ended up getting pregnant with my third kid. Well, okay. Fourth okay. kid, but fourth kid, but my third live child. And yeah. so, um, so then, uh, yeah, we got clean for a little bit, moved to Idaho for a second, had my daughter came back here. Uh, and then I relapsed again in 2008 because I had gotten clean for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2008, I relapsed and uh, ended up getting kicked out of where I was living because I had my own place and then uh, committed a bunch of crimes, you know, because it costs a lot of money to do drugs. So Yeah, it does. Uh, so I was, you know, stealing stuff out of people's cars, uh, checkbooks, things like that, doing mailbox stuff. Um, and... Uh, the cops on Capitol Hill had tried to accuse me of littering. It was obvious I was a drug addict. and Yeah, I um, needed something. Right. And so they illegally searched me, and they found a bunch of IDs and credit cards. And so um, I ended up getting charged for that later on down the road. Uh, and I did go to prison for that. Um, but when I got out of prison... Um, In what year? Uh, 2010. Mm-hmm. I was going to NA meetings, and this guy came up to me. What does that mean? Any? Yeah. Narcotics Anonymous. So mm. it's a 12-step program. Okay. Yeah, 12-step programs are... So Bill Wilson uh, created AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, I know what that is. Okay. okay. So NA so is just narcotics a... narcotics is drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, so this guy walked up to me, uh, and he said, is your name Ginny Bromley? And nobody in Seattle ever called me that. So... Bromley? That's my maiden name. I see. So... um. So nobody in Seattle ever called me that. So it, I knew. The moment that he said that, I knew who he was. Um, and I almost passed out. So it was the guy that shot and killed my son's dad in 1991. Oh, how did you know? Well, how did I know? Well, I went to junior high school with him. Oh, We knew each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so we knew each other. And, um, and I also stood up at his court hearing. Oh, I and see, I with see, my, I see. With my infant child... Mm-hmm. And said he is going to grow up his entire life without a dad, and he is getting four years. So he wasn't very happy about that, and he threatened to kill me um, prior to you know, or right after that. I seen him in a courtroom one time when I was in and out of jail all the time, you know, throughout my drug use. But um, uh, um, so I saw him, and I almost passed out when he said my name because it I knew exactly who he was right when he said that and he said i don't mean you any harm he said i just want to be able to make up for what i took from you and i said you didn't take anything from me you took it from my son and so uh we talked for a little bit and um and then we hugged and he asked me if he could take me to dinner and you know make amends or whatever and um but there was this really weird thing that happened when we hugged and it was like this crazy connection and um, you know, I'd lived in Seattle at that time for about 10 years, and um, and I always felt weird here. Like, I always felt like an alien, and um, there's something about, you know, familiarity from where you're from, you know, uh, and 
And we ended up seeing each other. And then I ended up marrying him. So you married the guy that killed your ex-boyfriend? Yes. That's strange. It's so strange. No offense, but it is. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... That's strange. Yeah. You went to court, testify against him and everything, and you yeah. just ended up marrying him. And yeah. that was your second husband? That was, yeah. That's why you said, I'd be like, what the heck? Yeah. And I was going to say. Like, yeah, it's what? pretty bizarre. Yeah. And um, and that was, what, 2010, you said? That we got married in 2011. Okay. And um, it was a very short-lived marriage. Uh, why it is that? It turned out just as bad as it sounds. Abusive? Very abusive. Very abusive. And um, he was really insecure. I was really insecure. Um he was not finished being an active addiction. I ended up relapsing behind it. Uh, the situation ended up being really abusive. I then went to Idaho to see my mom to try to get away from him. He ended up following me over there. My mom ended up dying. Um, oh. uh, cirrhosis of the liver. So my mom was also an active addict. And so... Uh, and she died in 2011? She did, yeah. November of 2011. And... Um, So uh, I ended up following him back this way, trying to figure it out. It was like I didn't get married for nothing. And so, you know, and then I found out he was gay and which made him really uncomfortable, which made him even more violent toward me. And um, how did you find out he was gay? uh, I looked in his emails. He was um, doing like meetups and creating um, um, like ads on Craigslist and things like that, inviting guys to do all kinds of stuff, mm. and uh, and I was pretty devastated. Of course. And um, and then I realized like that doesn't have anything to do with me. Yeah. And um, and then he became extremely violent towards me, like even more so during that time. And um, he started to break into people's houses after me and chase me with guns. And uh, he had come into a person's apartment. Um, this was in 2012. This was probably, I want to say, like maybe August of 2012, maybe September. No, I think it was more around September or October, actually, because I got um, got arrested in December. And so um, he, uh, he came into somebody's house after me with a hammer, and I thought for sure I was a goner. And so I had all these pills, um, and like I had like... I don't know, I had hundreds of pills, and there were, like, these different kind of uh, psychotropic drugs and these muscle relaxers, and I took, mm-hmm. like, 400-plus pills. and um, In one day? In At one time. Because I would... How? I just swallowed them. Like, I moved away from him, got into my backpack, and I put them all... Like, I just swallowed all of them. Like, I just kept shoveling them in and uh, drinking water and swallowing them. You wanted to just kill yourself? Yes. I was completely comfortable with dying. Um... I, Was that the second time you tried to kill yourself? Um, well, no. I've tried to kill myself probably more times than that. I've tried to o- overdose on heroin and um, benzos, and mm-hmm. I've tried to cut my arms. Is that what that's from? Some of them, yeah. The one right here on the... So, yeah. I tried to cut see deep enough. Yeah. Yeah. What about the one on the upper forearm? That's from a car accident. That's a car accident. Yeah, that was a high-speed chase with the police. Oh, wow. When was that? That was in 1997. Oh, so that was past, past from where we are now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That you, was way you, back yeah, then. There's a, a gunshot of... wound and a stabbing and a uh, thing that I, that I haven't even talked about. But oh, wow. um, so, um, so I took all of the pills because I figured I figured he was going to try to drive me away somewhere really far and murder me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew he was capable of murder. So, 
Um, and so I would rather die from overdose. I'd rather die at my own hands than, than to that. feel somebody hitting me in yeah. my head with a hammer. And um, so he drove around with me for about 30 minutes, and then he tried to force me to vomit. Um, I vomited some of it up, but um, and then I just don't remember much after that. And the next thing I remember was I was in my friend's car, and he dumped a big bucket of ice water on me. Um, apparently, I had been turning blue, um, and I remember urinating on myself at that time. Um, but apparently, my husband at the time called my friend, made my friend. He, they transferred me cars. He threatened my friend that not to take me to the emergency room, and a lot of people were very scared of him because he's a pretty scary guy, and threatened um, that if he took me to an emergency room that he was going to kill my friend. So my friend drove around with me for four days in the car, and my husband followed him for the majority of that time. Um, eventually, I woke up in an apartment, and uh, I remember trying to speak, trying to say something, and what was coming out of my mouth wasn't the words that I was hearing. Like, it was just, I don't know. It was a bunch of gibberish. And so, um, and at that time, like, mentally, I was aware, but verbally, I couldn't express myself. It was just noises that were coming out of my mouth. So I think that the drugs that I took really tampered with I'm my brain. I'm not surprised. Yeah, and so, um, and apparently, so I, apparently I was out for like four days, and uh, he thought that... What do you that, mean out? Like, you're like, out cold? Yeah. Yeah. So, and he told me that I looked blue um, for a lot of that time, which is why they ended up dumping the ice on me to try to bring me, you know, get me to breathe. Where were you? In Tacoma. Just like at a friend's house? When that happened. I was at a friend's house when that happened, uh, over off of Bridgeport in... Mm. Lakewood and um, my husband, I think she might have told him where I was and he came in there with a hammer after me I see. and my friend didn't try to help at all. Yeah. And so um, so uh, when I came to in that apartment, I was actually strung out on heroin at the time and uh, I knew that I had had some heroin on me somewhere, but I couldn't find it. And so... Um, Anyways, uh, I was just felt really terrible. Like, I felt sick, and I couldn't speak. Like, I could not talk about what was going on with me. I couldn't, I knew what was happening mentally, but... Yeah, um, and I smelled And I smelled like urine, and um, uh, my friend told me that he thought that I was going to die. I'm so grateful to him today. Like, I, I wasn't really grateful that I woke up alive at that time, but... Um, and then not long after that, I was arrested for the last time. In so, 2012? Yeah. December for what? December 5th. Uh, well, I have some warrants out. I was driving a stolen truck. The, it hadn't been turned in stolen. I was super grateful about that. A cop got behind me because the lights were flickering. So he thought there was a short in the lights, and he just wanted to let me know that there were a short in the lights. So I took him on a high-speed chase. Well, it wasn't very high-speed because there was, it was rush-hour traffic. So, yeah. But I ended up like drifting through this apartment yard. Oh, shoot. And... Um, and the cop said, uh, yeah, I was just trying to let you know about your lights. He was really kind to me, though, and he arrested me, and, and I was so grateful. I was so, it was over. Like, I didn't have to run and hide anymore. I, um, like, I knew I was fine. I figured I was going to be going to prison for a while. I had some warrants for forgery and identity theft, and um, I figured I was going to be going to prison for a while. And, um, and then I was just, you know, I figured out. I knew that I would be able to get clean then. Um, however, when I ended up in jail, apparently, uh, apparently I wasn't willing to consider treatment. So a friend what do you of mine, mean, apparently 
Well, I say apparently because my friend, I was talking to my friend, and I spoke about this on the interview that I did for the, the town hall. Um, my, I talked to my friend Ari Cohn. He's the, uh, the, the founder of the post-prison education program. Uh, I was calling him regularly uh, from jail, and he continued to ask me to go to treatment, and I was saying no, no, oh, like, no. Yeah. And I would tell him to F off and like hang up in his face. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I got out. Uh, I did end up going to treatment, and I did, I got King County Drug Court. They transferred my charges up here, and uh, I got out uh, six months later, and um, I've been clean ever since. I haven't touched anything since then, and um, uh, I completed drug court and I divorced that guy and uh, got my daughter back. What about your son? Well, he's 29. Oh. Yeah, yeah he's, he's 29. And my other daughter is 27. So mm-hmm. I have a I have a 14 year old. So, um, and she's in high school over in West Seattle. And um, yeah, and I got married again. And my husband did relapse a few years ago and kind of went crazy. Your third? Yes, I got yeah. married and. Um, but he is actually doing exceptionally well. Uh, and he lives in Olympia currently, and I live here. Um, Why aren't you living together? Well, he was released from prison. He ended up going back to prison. I put him in prison for what happened. Um, mind you, he was out of his mind. And uh, he's not one of those guys that I think is a terrible person. Well, I don't really think anybody's terrible. I think sometimes people just do terrible things. But um, he is somebody that I really thought had the ability to change, and I've supported him in that and helped him to get a prison sentence so that he could be separated from his addiction. And then I've been in his face with all of the things that I saw. And, uh, and he's gotten a whole lot of help as a result of it. And he's exactly the guy that I knew, the guy that I met, and the guy that I thought that he was in his heart. So granted, um, when he was released from prison, uh, he... Um, He was released to Thurston County because that was the first county he ever committed a felony in as an adult in Washington State. So, um, but he's doing really well down there. And I needed to see that he was going to do well on his own. And we needed to have the separation so that we could really put work in on our relationship. And so that's been going on. And it's, it's, and that experience with him actually has been, it was one of the reasons that I ended up going to the University of Washington. It's one of the reasons I went back to school. Yeah. So explain to me how. I mean, someone who's lived as a drug addict, life on the street, just crazy life, um, barely even went to eighth or ninth grade, like started to go to such a, an amazing school as the University of Washington. Yeah, they wanted me. <laughs> I was actually being recruited by Yale and a bunch of other really? Ivy League schools. Yeah. yeah. What happened? Um, so, I, um, so I was working in social services here in Seattle, and uh, I was also going through this process with my husband's court. Um, what year was this? Uh, 2016, 2017. Okay. And so and you were still living in Seattle though? Oh with yeah. With your kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, so, uh, I looked around, you know, I was, uh, in a meeting with a bunch of County officials and I looked around and I said, is this it Jenny? Cause I didn't really feel like I was serving at my highest capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also fighting the system, trying to get him the help that he needed in a realistic way. And I was continuing to butt up against Um, a brick wall essentially and so you know and having been to prison myself three times like I know what happens inside of prison and he needed something different right like he if he was to walk in to prison with no kind of intervention he was going to walk out the same guy so and that you know 
it was important to me to be able to help facilitate something different for him. And so, and I realized that it's not just him. It's all of us. It's everybody that gets incarcerated. Uh, there's nothing happening inside of there. And so, you know, I was like, I, the only way I'm going to be able to change this is if I go to school because yeah, I have an opinion at this point, but can't be, do much without a, not because a, of my history. Else, yeah. Yeah. Because of my history, it's not going to open necessary doors. And so I started back to school at South Seattle community college while I was uh, supervising three programs and, um, and I was graduating every quarter with honors and did you get your GED? Uh, yeah, I got my GED back when okay. I was like 17. Because I was going to say that I, I'm surprised they, they got don't, in there with They don't that. really check for that, but, okay. um, but so I got from, mine back when I was 17. Okay. So, um, so, uh, South Seattle, South Seattle. And then, uh, you know, I made a decision that, um, I wanted to probably go to UW and I, uh, Phi Theta Kappa hit me up, you know, oh, you should be part of the Honor Society. So I paid for that. And they um, they nominated me for something called the Jack Kent Cook Scholarship, which apparently is a really big deal. It's a 40000 It's a, actually a $120,000 transfer scholarship. It's one of the most prestigious in the nation for transfer students, oh, wow. as far as I know. And wow. so I was a semi-finalist in that, which is apparently a big deal. And I started being... Apparently. Re- it sounded like a really big I mean, deal to me. I didn't know. Well, yeah. I, I mean, either, I, didn't, I... I didn't know. So, like, it's not really something... Because I don't necessarily... I didn't know what the Truman was. So... Are you familiar with the Truman? I'll tell you the about what? the Truman. The Truman Scholarship. So I'm a true. I'm the Washington no. State Truman Scholar. Apparently, that's a big deal. I mean, I, it's. I, I don't know what that is either. I, I mean, it sounds like a big I deal. I didn't. It sounds like a big deal. But I, I got to be I honest had, with you. I, don't. I didn't know either. I had no idea. I was sitting in uh, an honors or a Martin Honors Foundation uh, function, and that's where I learned about the Truman. So. Anyway, so I was a semifinalist for this Jack Kent Cook deal, and I was like, oh, okay. And I started being recruited by all these schools, and then I, I decided to apply to Yale, and, um, but then I was like, gosh, I really don't want to go over there. I really want to do the work here at yeah, UW. That's where it's back home. Yeah, right. and because I know that they're doing the work here in this state, which is what has meaning for me. Yeah. And so... Um, so I decided to apply to UW. I actually am friends. So I also have previously worked with post-prison education program, uh, and I've done a lot of outreach in the prisons. And so, and a lot of the times I'll do outreach with people that are, you know, we'll do panels inside of prisons, uh, panel presentations where we're going in with educators and things like that. So I know people from UW. I was already Facebook friends with the president, uh, Anna Marie Cosse. And so anyways, um, but I knew somebody in admissions and uh, I decided to apply. My grades were really good. Uh, and my apparently my story is fairly compelling. And I say apparently a lot because you this do. is what other people say. Well, and the reason is, is because I don't look at, I think things are just things and people are just people. I don't think I'm extraordinary. I just think that I have played the hand that I've been dealt, right? Like, I don't think I'm special. And I don't think that I'm doing anything that nobody else is capable of. I believe that everyone is capable of doing what I'm doing. When, what do you mean doing what you're doing? Like, so I've gotten a lot of accolades. A lot of people have recognized the fact that I'm, you know, in at UW, like I'm graduating quarters with honors that receiving all these scholarships, I'm all this stuff. Receiving seventy four thousand dollars in scholarships and um 
you know, that I'm a Truman scholar and that I'm clean and sober and that my life is, and like I'm, you know, inching into politics and things like that. And, um, and I have 17 felony convictions. So, and people think that, I don't think it's extraordinary. I just think, A, the people that do have similar stories, people aren't really highlighting that. Or B, a lot of people just aren't applying themselves. I don't think I'm special. Do you think it's a, it's actually a great point you bring up because it's exactly what a close friend of mine and I talk about a lot. Like she always says mind over matter. It's kind of a thing. Like she always says like a lot of people could be what they aspire to be, you know, Um, or like they look up to other people like, oh, I wish I could do that. You could. And a lot of times you can. It's Mm -hmm. just about whether or not you really want to put yourself to it. And, you know, it's like, like nothing's going to change unless you bring yourself dedication to yeah. it and everything like that. So it's actually exactly what I've been talking about the last few weeks with my friend. It's just like, I mean, there's some people that have special crazy talents. There's some people yeah. that have extraordinary stories that like you can't really do things to make things happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just the way life goes. Yeah. But a lot of the time, and I, I, by the way, I do think that your story is very, very special. I mean, of course it is, but like you're I saying, was, I know lots of people with really hard stories. No, so I, don't I know, think it's but this is probably, uh, you, you probably know a lot more harder stories than I would just based on, you know, who your yeah. company is and who your friends are and who you grew up with. But, you know, I didn't grow up in a similar situation at all. So this is probably personally the most like the better comeback story, the better, like, you know, just crazy story. So I have to say for me, you know, it I'm is glad. a special story. <laughs> yeah. But I like the fact that you, you, you kind of apply the fact that, um, like everybody can have stories yeah. or, you know, whether it, whether there's about a, you know, comeback story like yours or like about anything, it's just all about mind over matter. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it is crazy though. You know, if, if someone told me everything about you, except for the fact, like leading up to like 2011, I'd be like, Oh, is she dead now? Is she in prison? Yeah. Like what happened? Never would assume that you'd be at, you know, such a great school getting offered by even better schools across the country and everything like that. Um, so it's a good point that you bring up because I really, I actually really appreciate that you brought that up. Just as just something I've been thinking of, people are like enslaved by their like mental prisons. So Whatever you do tell anything. yourself is the truth. Yeah. That's Whatever good. you tell yourself is the truth. And that's what I learned. I mean, now granted eight years ago, eight years ago, there's no way you could have convinced me that I would be where I am today. Mm-hmm. You, there's no way. Um, but it's all been one step at a time, right? Like, and it started with me having an idea and then post-prison education program provided me an opportunity to work with a coach that is employed by Google. And I only met with her a couple of times and she was, you know, essentially asking me, what do I want to do? And I was considering education, right? I was considering going back to school. And so, you know, we just made a couple of commitments and my commitment was just to look into schools. And what ended up happening is I filled out my FAFSA and I ended up applying and attending. And then, uh, and I just stayed committed. And, um, you know, one of the things that happens for me with most of what I do today is um, I tend to reflect on the patterns that I've always acted in, right? So, for example, um, with education, it's like, oh, I don't want to take too big of a break because I'm afraid I'll lose motivation. And I don't want to lose motivation because so many times in the past I've lost motivation and I've stopped doing the thing that was going to excel or help me to excel or, you know, carry me to this other place. And so, um, you know, that's been one of my fears. However, like I took almost a year off, at least nine months. Uh, wait, I turned down the first offer from UW because I just felt pressured. I didn't have finances in order. Um, 
And I felt like there was something more. And there was. I ended up finishing out, instead of cramming, you know, everything into a, the summer quarter to complete the associates portion, um, I ended up, you know, just taking that the last two classes the next fall. And then I got offered these scholarship opportunities. And then I became uh, familiar with the Martin Honors Scholarship, which is a UW-specific scholarship, and I won. Um, and that's a $36,000 scholarship that lasts for three years. And so, um, and then when I got to UW, then I was granted these other scholarships that I didn't even ask for. The All Washington Academic Team for University of Washington, they gave me that. And, uh, and then my, I was eligible for the Husky Promise. Uh, I was a single parent and I was taking care of my other kids and stuff. And so, um, so my tuition was covered. Like my yeah. tuition and my living expenses have been completely covered. And so, and then while I was at a, um, a function for the Martin Honors um, Foundation, that's when I learned about the Truman Scholarship. And I'll tell you, I still, even though they presented it there, all I heard was $30,000 for grad school. That's yeah. all I heard. And so I applied for it. And I had absolutely no idea that I was applying for one of the most prestigious pu public service um, scholarships in the nation that is recognized in some really amazing ways. And I became part of a family uh, when I won that scholarship and accepted um, to be a member of the, Scruman, the Truman family, excuse me. Um, so like a lot of that stuff is happening and um, you know, my life is just really different. I just recently applied to three public policy schools, Evans School being one of them. It's one of the top public policies, public policy schools in the nation. Um, I was talking to the, uh, the director of admissions the other day, and he said, he pretty much said, yes, we're going to make you an offer, but he cannot awesome. say that before they make the well, offer. Yeah, that'd be a little unfair to everybody else. Right. And so, um, so no, it's just, it's just crazy. And there are some days I'm looking at myself in the mirror, like who in the hell are you? Because I don't know. And it's so crazy and it's amazing. And the thing is, is that. I'm really not special, right? You're just somebody who decided to step forward and change their ways. Yeah, just to take one step at a time. All are, yeah, it's a good. It's We're a good all view. capable. Yeah, so n people that are special are just people who decided to do something with their capabilities. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is um, I mean, I had a lot of fear and discomfort along the entire the entire way, but that's not something I'm not familiar with. I've lived in it my whole life. I just know what all of that other stuff is going to get me. So it just doesn't make sense anymore. Yes, it took me a lot longer than most people, you know. Um, but at the same time, I look at it like um, all of those things were really necessary because I get this opportunity to have an understanding for people that are broken and that need help and that need hope and that need love. And I can communicate things in ways that some other people can't. And because by, you, you live that. Yeah. And by becoming educated and gaining some credentials, I am going to be able to impact policy that can influence people's lives in ways that... Because the people that have been making policies, they don't have any understanding. Yeah. So... Exactly. That's, that's why people are always frustrated with higher-up people like politicians and yeah, stuff like that. because they read a book. <laughs> Do you have any, like... So, yeah, you're saying, like, you know, the way you lived your life and everything that happened, it made you who you are today, right? I mean, it made you be able to understand people better, probably, you know, got you. I mean, it's just like your life, everything happened, you're at UW now. Do you have any 
I'm, I'm guessing you do like regrets or are you just glad that everything made in you into who you are today? That's a great question. So, um, there are definitely things that, you know, would have been nice if they could have been done differently. Um, mostly around my children. Mm-hmm. Um, but I cannot say that I have regrets, um, because I think that everything in my life uniquely set me up for purposes beyond me. I really have a spiritual belief that everything that happens in our life happens so that we can help other people. It doesn't matter who you are or what your path is. Um, You're going to have unique things about you that you're going to be able to identify with somebody else that's going to help them out of a situation at some point in their life. It may be one, it may be 10, it may be 100 or 1,000 or what have you. So um, I think that if things would have happened differently in my life, um, then I would have a very different understanding. Granted, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't have reached people, but um, I think that the people that I am going to be capable of reaching, well, first of all, I'm capable of reaching a lot of people because the ideas of change and self-love and hope and things like that, that it spans across all human beings, mm-hmm. right? But my story specifically um, reaches the hopeless, and it's my people that... you were hopeless. And it's my people that I want to reach. It's the people that are afflicted by addiction and the streets and prisons and jails and abuse. Those are the people that I want to know. I want them to know that there is a way out. And it's, but it starts with you, you know? And um, I mean, and that's the whole purpose behind everything I'm doing. Yeah. Do you see, I mean, you live in Seattle, so you definitely see how bad things are getting in yeah. the streets. and. Everywhere. I mean, I, I don't live like, I have a Seattle address, but I like to come down here a lot. I love the place. Um, and I just see it a lot. Yeah. Um, so what do you think? You mean, you talk about people that don't have the experience. Like you say, they read a book, they have a degree, whatever. It doesn't mean they know anything. Um, you probably have way more understanding than they ever will have, unless they have to go through your life, which they never will have. Like, what do you think needs to happen? I, I, I want to quote you, not exactly, I'm just paraphrasing. Um, the problem is, this is what you said in your interview, the problem is like we're loving people too much. We're That's loving a, people to death. Loving people to death. Sorry. Yeah. See, I told it's okay. you. okay. No, it's okay. Uh, something like that. We're loving people to death. Yeah. I know that you explain that um, sometime during the documentary, but I want you to explain that to me and then put it into perspective of how that relates to what's happening in Seattle with the drugs and the homelessness. Sure. So um, the idea of loving people to death. So I think that... Uh, I think that there is an idea that love means that I just stand back and allow you to just be you, to do you and to make your own decisions and things like that. And um, I don't necessarily view that always as love. Um, no interjecting. I don't, I don't think that's love. Um, I think that we find a way to detach ourselves. Um, I worked in social services for a number of years. and. Uh, and we're technically trained to support people's decisions. And um, had my decisions been supported, uh, had the things that I believed when I was in addiction, I, I won't even say that I believed, but the things that I communicated, because mm-hmm. they were very different things. Because right. what happened in my head was not what actually came out of my mouth. And so um, uh, had those things been uh, supported during the time that I was using, I probably would be dead or in prison for a really long time. Um, so I, you know, we're trying to move away from incarceration in this city uh, 
there's an idea that they want to close down the King County Jail, I think that's a terrible idea. Um, I think that loving people to death is allowing them to sit down on the streets and defecate and shoot drugs and rape each other and rob each other and just sort of let them do what they want and offer them services. But if they don't take it, well, then that's fine. I don't think that's love. If my kid walked into my house with a crack pipe and a person and decided that they were just going to, you know, do whatever, I'm not going to just sit there and be okay with my kid destroying their life. Yeah. So I think that it's really imperative for us as a society to become the village. Um, I think that it is up to us to not take away um, punitive responses to criminal behaviors, regardless of, you know, we can call addiction a social health problem. That's fine. Um, however, addiction on its own, sure, is a social health problem, but it creates behaviors that violate the rights of other people. Yeah. So it's really important that we address those things appropriately, right? We continue to use incarceration, but we, we put services in with that. Now, I think a lot of the incarceration uh, responses, for example, uh, the way that people prosecute and the sentences that people are looking at, I think they're often astronomical and unrealistic um, because inside of facilities, we don't have services. We don't have things that help a person to improve and progress. They're just locking them up and doing they're just They're warehousing people. Yeah. And so I think that love looks like it's what King County Drug Court did for me. Keeping you accountable. They, they held me accountable. They put me away long enough to gain my senses. And then they transferred me into a program in the community that supported my mental health, my drug and alcohol problems. And they allowed me to, um, to become educated in a way that helped me to, you know, I mean, to get to where I am today. So, right. so I think that that's, that's really necessary and it's missing. And when I was in addiction, it's, a, you know, and I said this earlier, I told this story about when I was in jail and my friend continued to offer me treatment and I wasn't willing to do it. Yeah. Granted, the whole time, I was grateful that I got arrested. I was grateful to be taken out of that. But because of my addiction, like I was unwilling to actually participate. It took a while for me to be able to get that out of my system enough to say, man, I don't want to live like that anymore. I knew I didn't want to live like that anymore, but you when the drugs, yourself. yeah, when the drugs are in me, they dominate my life. They dominate my life. And, you know, so I have a daughter, my youngest daughter, her dad is strung out on heroin. And, uh, when Oregon, uh, legalized their drugs, and I talked to her about that. She actually had a paper that she had to write in school about that. And I asked her, I said, what do you think about that? What, what do you what think? What drugs did Oregon, Oregon really Oh, have? Oregon legalized heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. For distribution or just street well, use or what? They, you can get tickets for distribution depending on how much it is. So, but if you were shooting up on the street, there's nothing. There's nothing. Do. If you're possessing a specific I amount of it. I have no idea about yeah, that. Yeah, that happened. That just happened. That's awful. It's terrible. And I asked my daughter, I said, what do you think about that? Because she's lost her dad. Like, her dad is not in her life anymore. And he raised her for the first seven years of her life. So, um, you know, I asked her, I said, how do you feel about that? Well, not the first seven years. I had her for the first year and a half. He had her until she was Still eight. Still the dad, But though. yes. And so she's like, you know how I feel about that, mom. So, you know, we have a bunch of policy writers and a bunch of lawmakers that are making decisions 
we have a bunch of people that are attending schools. I'm in classes with folks all the time, and they everybody has this great idea that you just abolish prisons and that you just let drug addicts make their own choices and be drug addicts. And But what about the moms that are losing their kids? What about the kids that have lost their parents? What about the husbands that have lost their wives and the wives that have lost, that have lost their husbands? What about them? Has anybody asked them? Has anybody asked what they think about uh, legalizing drugs? Um, because I can tell you right now, my daughter has something to compare it to. I'm the parent that was incarcerated, that got the opportunity to get their life back, and now she has her mom. Granted, we butt heads all the time, but she has a mom, yeah. and she has a mom that's stable, and she knows that she can count on me. But her dad, she can't count on him. She doesn't have that relationship anymore. She tries to reach out, but he's not there. He's not present. And with the idea of n drugs not being criminalized, that only tells her that she's not going to see him anymore. Yeah. You got you to gotta take into accountability people who actually need their voices heard or yeah. have these experiences because it comes back to it. You yeah. just have these people that are making decisions, but they don't really know anything. No. Right, and they're just doing it for not to get people mad and just, you know, let's get this out of the way and not yeah, worry about it. we just want to let them make their own decisions. Yeah, no, it's, it's not supposed to be like that because, yeah. I mean, Seattle is an example of what's... And Portland is... Or sorry, I mean, I'm saying that because that's, like, where a lot of homelessness and all that stuff yeah. is in Oregon. But Oregon in general, I guess, is... Portland and Seattle, I'll just say that. Yeah, it's, I think it's mostly of, Portland. <laughs> like and L.A. too. Yeah. Or, I mean, I, I guess it hasn't yeah, been legalized LA. there, but L.A. is a complete crap hole and yeah it's just slowly becoming that and i don't it's it's upsetting me seeing how like it's happened to like this this you know this city too yeah i mean i, I go downtown my and kid can't like even that. go to the park yeah oh we we live up in um ballard and yeah. there's the parks are completely just tent cities yeah. really that's what they are with syringes and criminal behavior and prostitution and trafficking yeah. and my kid cannot go there with her dog like, yeah. I'm not comfortable with my kid going to the park by herself. Yeah. I go downtown a lot with my friends, and my sister says to me all the time, like, I wish I could do that. Yeah. Because, you know, we're 18, 17-year-old guys yeah. in groups of, like, you know, 9 or 10. Yeah. It's not that big of a problem. Yeah. But, you know, her and her friends, you know. Yeah. And I feel like if you, you know, not too long ago, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I just haven't been, you know, mature enough to understand everything going on, but... That could possibly have been a thing where they could go downtown with not really having as much worry. I just go oh, downtown yeah. now. Some and years ago, for sure, you know. No, my daughter, a few years ago, actually, and I appreciate that you bring that up. She was like, oh, mom, I want to go hang out downtown. I was like, absolutely not. I worked right down on 2nd Yesler for quite a while. And uh, I was like, no, dude, it's not happening. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we, like a month ago, we just go down there on our bikes, people throwing bottles at us out of their tents and chasing us and stuff like that. It's like... It's like, what's, what, what, what's going on here? Like, we got to do something about this. Yeah. I mean, not just for us, but like for, for the city, for people that don't want to come here anymore. People moving out of here, yeah, you know, I people know. don't want to work here. People I don't, don't want to visit here, here anymore. I don't know. I don't blame you. My, you know, my family just, I mean, we have, we're fortunate, right? With yeah. everything we have, but it's like, it's just not, it's not what it should be. And the people that are the only ones that can change it are the people that don't have any idea what the hell they're supposed to be doing. They just... Yeah. Well, they're not listening to the majority, yeah. in my opinion. Um, 
you have a small portion of our society right now that's screaming out for all these folks. You know, I don't know what I would have thought. I would have probably been in heaven when I was committing all those crimes that we're talking about, right? Like, when I was terrorizing society, uh, if somebody, if they would have started standing up and saying, she can't help it because she's a drug addict. Are you kidding me? I'd be like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of poor course. me. I don't want to go to jail. Yeah. I'm so grateful for jail. Yeah. I'm so grateful for jail. And the programs that they gave you too. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, it's like we're denying people an opportunity to have my kind of experience. We are. When we're not intervening, we're denying people the opportunity to turn their life around. We are. Mm-hmm. When we're not providing, and it's, I worked in social services. We were not providing help. We were providing band-aids. Yeah, some people got housed and some people did better. But the thing is, it's like, but they can't see themselves beyond where they're at now. And most of them are still in active addiction and they're still doing things. And most of them didn't like their life. They wanted to be able to stop. But now they're living in these housing programs where everybody around them is on drugs and there's really no way out for them. So is that better? Are, are we serving them in that way? No, I don't think so. Absolutely not. Like, I don't think we are. Uh, I mean, I know for a fact that we're not, but you know, uh, I won't speak for everybody. I'll just speak for myself and say, I just don't think so. I don't think so. Um, Because, you know, uh, at 48, I'm not done. I'm not done. So why should somebody else have to be done? You know, and one of the common conversations that goes on amongst social service people are, they can't do this. Yes, they can. And it would make me so angry. Please don't tell me what people can't do. Yeah. You know, it's not up to it's not up to you. No, yeah. it's up to how much willingness they have. Yeah, and a lot, I think a lot of if you really put like really kept people accountable, like sorry, not you, like if people started keeping like the homeless people and drug addicts and everything accountable, right? Like they did to you, I think a lot of them would just decide, like you know, I mean, I can't tell, like you just said, I'm not gonna tell them what they can and can't do. I think I think it would be a way different situation than a lot of people think, like up politicians and stuff think i think they're just like scared you know for you know everybody just wants to be reelected right now (laughs) yeah exactly but they don't really understand that i feel like you said like mind over you know we're talking about mind over matter a lot of people would don't want to be in there it's just kind of the drugs are taking control but if you put if you give them the right tools instead of giving them what they want not what they need instead of paying for their housing or what have you free shoot up places them how to take care of themselves Because it would be way better. Yeah. And I don't like seeing... The dynamic with their drug addiction will change when they start to feel good about who they are. When yeah. they start to be able to care for themselves. When they actually learn a trade or, you know, become socially responsible in society. Or when they become reinvolved in their family's lives. When they start to have some self-respect, their yeah. relationship with their addiction is going to change. For sure. But that's not being facilitated at this point. Yeah, I hope it changes... Um, because, you know, I don't know how bad I want to live here once I'm yeah. out of everything. Oh, I'm and trying to move. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. And yeah, I hope it changes because I love and this place. And besides the fact that it's, it's extremely expensive here, but mm-hmm. we're expected to sort of live like prisoners. Yeah, like alongside tents and everything like yeah. that. Yeah, and like prisoners. And so technically, like what's happening is they're... Uh, saying, well, these people have precedent in this city and um, you don't really have any say, even though you're the one that's paying for them to live. Yeah. So 
it's, yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but hopefully it changes. And I hope so. You, and I'm trying to contribute to that I was going to say, you, your, your story is something that, you know, whether it's this podcast or just on, on Como or something like that, it's getting out to people clearly across the world, across the country, across the city, everything. It's like hopefully that people can understand that it's not it's not just like the end once they get hooked and, you know, Seattle's going to help them out with that, you know. Yeah. And maybe it's people that are high up, like politicians that can see that and be like, shoot, we got to start getting down on this, you know. Yeah. But I mean, as for now, I don't know what's happening. I don't think they're comfortable right now to speak out against mm-hmm. it because the majority is like, oh, this needs to happen this way. And so um, what I'm kind of hoping happens is after that Como stuff has been released is that, you know, we have a couple of people that are brave enough to say, you know what, let's try something different. Yeah. Let's try to come in between because we are over here right now with don't criminalize, don't punish, don't do anything, just let them do what they want. And we were over here before where it's like warehouse them, throw them in jail and don't do anything. We need to come somewhere in between where we're mixing services with accountability and we're actually teaching people how to take care of themselves. Yeah. Because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, as Oh, that's fine. You want to be a drug addict? That's cool. But we're going to go ahead and put that on pause right now. If you want to be here in Seattle, like you don't get to sleep outside and do all these things, but there are these places that you can come inside and you just need to go through this gamut of, you know, whatever we have going on. Right. And we're going to teach you how to do these things. And then you can pay your own way. Like we're just not going to fund you. I don't think that one of the most beneficial things for me is that I have always had to fund myself. And so, um, people become dependent on people giving them money. And oh, stuff yeah. Like that. It's learned helplessness, right? They yeah. just don't want to, uh, it's like, why, why should I do that? I don't have to, they're going to mm-hmm. do it for me. Yeah. So if we force people to be responsible for themselves and we teach them how to do that, then I think we're serving people appropriately. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to have got you to, you know, be able to share your story more than the small part I saw. And like I said, I wasn't, I didn't really want to go into detail looking into yeah. your story because I wanted to find out for myself. Otherwise, I would have missed out on a lot of questions and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. I guess it's perfect timing. <laughs> just went out. So, yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks cool. so much for having me. No, of course. Yeah, I'm a... Uh, this is definitely the podcast I was looking most forward to. I mean, it's cool. the, I think it's the most short notice podcast. Yeah. Like I found out in a few days later, we're doing it. Um, most people have been, you know, trying to get on for, you know, weeks or something yeah. like that. But definitely was the one I'm looking most forward to, especially my grandma. Thank she'll you. Be, she'll be excited. My family, my Tell grandma. Tell your grandma I yeah. said thanks for the no. support. No, I will. I definitely will. She'll probably, she'll probably hear you. So thanks, grandma. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I appreciate you coming on. Cool. And I hoping, I'm hoping within the next, I don't know how long, things start to change. All right. Um, around here because you know your story definitely brings brings hope to that to that spectrum so yeah 